Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob, Ben, and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally these projects gel, most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Ben. And I refer to myself as an intelligent life form. Uh, I don't. I don't know if many other people would, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've known you for a long time, Rob, and I've never referred to you as an intelligent life form. Uh, I was either going to do that one, which I, I do really like that line. I think by that point in the movie, um, you know, when when that, I think that's from the Puppet Master. But there's so many great lines from both Puppet Master and you know um, Kusanagi and stuff like that. I really did want to use one of the earliest lines in the movie: uh, "The I'm entitled to diplomatic immunity. I want to talk to the person in charge here." <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there was a point like diplomatic immunity for some reason I, I don't remember exactly why I think it was like a confluence of a few different TV shows and movies and stuff like that where I would see like um this was like back in middle school and high school I would see people in shows and they would either say like oh I have diplomat diplomatic immunity or they're a, f- a few things I've seen have done something where it's like, oh, we can't let him get to his country's embassy because then we can't get him, you know, for the crime type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I've always, like, me and my friends in high school, we'd always joke and be like, a diplomatic immunity doesn't mean that you, like, can murder somebody, <laughs> you know? Like, it doesn't mean, like, oh, I could just go and commit, like, a major massive crime. Like, like I think we even started joking where it's like, you know, imagine if someone hijacked a plane and then they get caught, you know, maybe they get taken down by the passengers and then they land and the guy's like, nope, I have diplomatic immunity. You can't can't charge me with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I definitely feel like shows kind of uh, push it over the top where, where they where they think it can uh, help them get away with anything. It's like, yeah, yeah. Just, I, just like certain reasonable things, I think. Yeah, I think like if, diplomatic immunity covers something like if you're you're the person with diplomatic immunity and you're like being driven in your car like to the UN or something and a cop pulls you over because you're speeding the cop's gonna be like okay I'm not gonna deal with this because you have diplomatic immunity and that's just gonna cause a bunch of problems you know (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it extends like imagine if you like ran a red light and caused like two other cars to crash into each other you know could you imagine where it's like you know oh like we got you for a hit and run like you clearly caused this accident it's on like the the uh, red light camera and stuff like that guys like no diplomatic immunity i basically i'm like a fire truck you have to move out of the way when i'm on the road you know <laughs> so yeah so i'm just like looking up diplomatic immunity because now i'm curious uh it, it's specifically says it gives limited protection <laughs> nice nice perfect perfect use of the term limited you know the only thing i think would have been funnier if it said like minimal protection <laughs> right Oh, well, but like I said, I did not use that quote to start with, so I don't have diplomatic immunity. Except, though, I think, in some extent, Ben, you and I, uh, while we're in the restaurant, we do have immunity, because we own the place. Um, And we have ways to prevent the cops from doing anything to us, you know, a la the word processor of the gods, and many other things I'm not thinking of right now. But, uh, what a great way to kick off this second installment of our adult animation series. Last week, we talked about something that Ben and I absolutely loved under the Red Hood, and now we're taking it overseas. We're going to the land, or basically everywhere but, you know, North America, that actually views animation as a meaningful art form. And we are talking with what better way than going overseas to Japan, where, you know, anime comes from, and anime being such a huge influence on the animation medium since it came out. 
the seminal, one of the most important animated films of all time, I believe, which I'm sure we'll get into, Ghost in the Shell. And now everybody, okay, we're talking about the animated one. I don't know if I made that clear. This is the animation series. We are not doing 2017's Scarlett Johansson live action version of this. Okay? Now, I guess I should ask you, Ben, did you watch the right movie? <laughs> I didn't watch any movie. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> ben is like, no, I... <laughs> what's the point of watching an animated movie? It's like, it's like I'm just watching a bunch of still things, you know, move together. <laughs> it's like reading a book. You're just moving your eyes over still words on a page, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, uh, I actually hate animation. No. No, I, <laughs> I watched the right one. It was not difficult to find. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think it's the one that, you know, actually still is very well acclaimed. What, 27, 26, 27 years after it came out from 1995 um i'm pretty sure the 2017 one came and went because uh, i don't think it was very well received i think if anything um how about how about this let's just rip the goddamn band-aid off ben because i don't really want to get into it too much because it's not the focus of this series of this episode but we have to at least mention it's an example that we've used in the past for you know uh, like i think something like the cultural appropriation of anger or being, like, you know, angry on someone else's behalf. If anybody does not remember, in 2017, when the live-action version of Ghost in the Shell came out, Scarlett Johansson is cast as um, Kusunagi, the main character. From what I've read, I should also say I've never seen the live-action version. Um, I have just have had no interest in it. Um, but it's not even—the character's not even named the same. It's like— it's like Killian or something. It's like she's not even called Kusunagi like she is in this movie, but it's clearly the same character, like inspired by and very much the same story. And almost like immediately and unanimous, unanimously, the American audiences labeled that movie as whitewashing. Critics, audiences, they were like, this is whitewashing. This is insane. How they get this, you know. American lady to play this like beloved and important like Japanese character and I'm like oh, okay there's there's a lot to unpack here um one like the original character is a cyborg why aren't you getting upset that Scarlett Johansson is not a cyborg you know are you saying we should have found a cyborg Japanese person to play this because I don't know if they exist and two the the part of the story that I know we've talked about before, Ben, my favorite aspect of this whole backlash of whitewashing, in air quotes, for the, the live-action movie, Asian audiences were in shock. Like, the actual Japanese, like, audience for the live-action movie were in shock because they were like, why would casting of an American woman cause controversy? Well, one, they said it was very cool that such a big star was representing something that's so important to their, their culture of anime. But two, right. the entire entire kind of point of this movie is the theme of blurred lines between self-identity <laughs> so the, the idea of like what is life what is representation is my body representative representative or is it my ghost my mind my soul and asian audiences were kind of like anybody who seems to be having this issue seemingly doesn't understand the movie so <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm glad to hear that there was some uh well i, I guess like general common sense applied yeah, by right, by them right like a, uh, like a reaction that uh you know wasn't just like right off the bat immediately like you know it wasn't the because i'm sure it happened in 2017 when this movie came out 
the YouTubers, the YouTube reactor people, you know, the people that just get out a video as fast as they can to get an opinion out there, to get views. Right. Yeah, to I'm get sure the views early. They, yeah. they saw this headline and said, like, Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell live action, whitewashing, question mark? They couldn't post that video fast enough, right? You know? Yeah, I mean, she murders a whole other culture in this movie. <laughs> that's, I assume that's what their opinion was. Um, oh, God. It, it, it just drove me crazy. And the thing is, it's like I... When I heard that back in 2017, so what, five years ago now, I wasn't even, like, upset. I, I think I, I was more upset because it, there was a lack of common sense, um, because I've, I've known about the animated one for damn near my whole life. It's been a, a part of me, you know, since back in, like, middle school when I was in comic book shops and stuff. This is such an important movie. But I was just like, you know, it, it, this doesn't, like, take away anything from the original. I think it goes back to another remake thing where some people say, oh, remakes, like, bastardize the original or they, they lessen the original. And I'm like, no, if anything, they bolster the original. I, I think there was a lot going on back I mean, in 2017 when this happened, but now it kind of just, the lasting legacy of that live-action movie is that it was whitewashing, according to some people. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Remakes, it's like it either makes the original look better by comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it's a or it's a valuable like homage to the original. I I don't I don't know. I feel like people. Well, I guess what I should say is if if you want to get offended, you can. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is you can find something to be offended about with almost within almost anything. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And if if that's what you're after. Uh, what is it that they say? Like, uh, what's the worst thing that can happen to a man who goes looking for blood? He finds it. Mm. It's like, it's it's like that, except you're gonna find a way to be offended. Oh yeah, and uh, and it also is the worst thing that can happen to you. Um, so I I don't know. It's just to assume that level of what I I get I guess like what you're you're entitled to the to decide how other cultures should react Exa to something. Yeah. Like that's yeah. very strange. Um, and just because you think that that's, you know, what's going on in this country or whatever. And you want to, it's like the people who made this content disagree with you. Um, and of course, like you said, one of the things was like, they, they, this is a big American actress playing a part from an anime movie or a manga. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's a big fucking deal. Yeah, that that's previously bringing this a, was relegated to, to Saturday morning cartoons. Exactly, that's a big thing. It like brings a lot of attention to it. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure that um, Ghost in the Shell, while it is such a a big movie, a very a very famous movie, you know, um, from the the 1995 and is culturally lasted the entire time. I mean, I'm I'm sure. Well, I know I would you know be very confident of course that there's people who hadn't heard of it and the only reason they now have heard of it is because scarlett johansson played that role and got that attention maybe the attention she right. got because of whitewashing wasn't the best attention but it is a positive you know pr thing that now more people even though it might be unfortunate where you go to someone on the street and say hey ghost in the shell what do you know about it and they say oh yeah that's that like movie where scarlett johansson plays like a, a japanese woman and it's like nah, no no that's not it but at least you know what we're talking about you know <laughs> at least we, we might not be on the same page but at least you picked up the right book you know and and sometimes you, you that's the best you can hope for <laughs> i mean any publicity is good publicity right yeah so i mean yeah sure. whatever that means that's why so like just on on the same exact page? Why didn't Tilda Swinton get this much hate for Doctor Strange? Is it because people liked the Doctor Strange movie? Oh, you're probably right. Um, I did hear that. I heard some of that backlash. Nowhere near as strong as it was for um, Ghost in the Shell. But 
I, I have to imagine that um, it, they're not they're not like Marvel isn't like proofed or you know protected completely from controversy, but clearly the people who support Marvel are in much greater number than the people who have problems with its controversies, like the Tilda Swinton thing, and they just kind of get you know like ironed out in the wash or something like that if that makes sense right it's just like an outnumbering effect yeah yeah enough people that liked it that's that's kind of what i'm thinking and it's just like i mean okay i guess that's cool like why but but the people who made a fuss about like where were they are they marvel fans did they like this Mm. did they like tilda swinton as uh whatever the hell her her character was called the ancient one or whatever yeah yeah something like that i've 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 only seen that um, movie once, and uh, Jesus Christ, we're even coming up on Doctor Strange 2, Ben. That's in, what, a few days or some shit like that. Yeah. Oh, like that. oh God. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I haven't even watched any uh, trailers for it. But but anyway, my, my point being, like, the people who were upset about Ghost in the Shell, if uh, I I hope they were also upset about this. Or, I don't know, maybe they grew. I guess you're allowed to grow as a sure, person. Sure, sure. Uh, that would be great if that's what happened. So hopefully that is what happened. I mean, uh, we can only hope. I, I think. I think the um, the true testament, and maybe this is kind of the last thing I want to say about the whole controversy with the remake, the live action one, is that I think it's the um, it the, the test of time has happened. Even though it's been you know what, like I said, twenty seven years since the original, twenty six, twenty seven. It's now been five, four or five since the remake. Um, I think that you know it is just uh, proof to how little that controversy mattered in the long run because I think nobody, you know, the people who know Ghost in the Shell, everybody's just forgotten the live-action one. It, the the original, the animated one, is the one that still stands the test of time and I think will always stand the test of time. Um, I I agree with you. I, I, sh- I want to ask the question because I want to make sure yeah. that we're talking about it right. Um, is it a remake when they switch medium? Ooh, or is it an adaptation? That's a... That's a good question. Is it also a remake when they change not so much the big themes or the big story points of it, but, you know, I'm pretty sure I've read that in the live action they get a lot more into the backstory of, like, why Scarlett Johansson... I, that's also what sucks. I can't even call her Kusanagi because she's not playing the same character name. But, like, why she has cybernetic enhancements. Like, there's a whole thing about, like, her getting into a car accident and losing her family, which is not in the original at all. Like, there might be one or two throwaway lines that talk about, you know, Kusanagi in the original, but it's just, like, they basically I, just say, like, go fuck yourself. Here she is. She's a cybernetic cyborg, like, half-human, half, I, I like, don't, deal yeah, with I it. Don't, I don't think so because I, I think a lot of the the movie she's just like i'm not sure i ever actually was a person yes yes then that and that's that's the thing is like i think that the um the remake you know one i want to get back to your question because that's a great question if you change medium is it a remake or is it something different like a reimagining or something an like adaptation that? an adaptation absolutely i also think you know if you are changing it the story you like while keeping the the big beats you know well, maybe making sure that all the same, you know, massive notes, like climactic notes get played, but you're changing all the notes in between to make it more uh, culturally appealing. Because there's no way that in 2017 they were like, oh, we have to just remake the original because that one was so good. They had to do the whole studio thing where they go, okay, we have to change this because American audiences will understand this better. We need the emotional connection. You know, we need this to happen. We need th- these beats to hit. So... It, I I would actually say that's that's a, a great a great point that with both of those things medium and storytelling or just structural changes it isn't a remake it's it's not a cover like you know you have a cover of a song 
where it's just different band doing the same thing. It really is a reimagining, an adaptation. Like, there's clearly other thoughts and fingers going into it that are changing it and making it only, you know, a, a, a descendant of, I guess, is what I'm thinking, the, the word yeah, I'm thinking of. And yeah, and I guess something that, like, where it becomes incredibly obvious is a movie based on a book would never be called a remake. Yes, absolutely. Th- yeah, that is a th- that's obviously a much more drastic medium shift, where these are still both visually, uh, you know, audiovisual uh, pieces I've, of work. I've never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. Do you know how weird it would sound if you were out and, like, say, you're hanging out with your friends or somebody as, or something, and somebody says, like, "Oh, I really like the Harry Potter three remake." You'd go, they made another version of Harry Potter 3? And they'd be like, yeah, you know, it was the book and then it was the movie. You'd go, you're out of your fucking mind. Nobody speaks that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that would be, that would be crazy. So, yeah, so I, I think, I think adaptation is, is more appropriate. I would agree. Do you think this gets Oh, and the, in this case also reimagining because they do change some story elements. Exactly. To this point, because this is great, this actually goes off, you know, like we talked about last week, one of our big kind of themes or ideas that we want to get at and that why you know we want to do this whole adult animation series is that people in you know north america um they look down on animation they see it as childish they see it as as an inferior medium do you think there is a level of you know you asked the question if you go from animation to live action is it a remake or is it something else do you think that that remake just gets said because they're like oh they're both movies you know, the, that the the common American audience member doesn't go, oh, that's an animated movie, this is a live-action movie. Yeah, of course they know those words, they know they mean different things, but at the end of the day, they just, like, it's not book to movie from them. It's, you know, it's not play to movie, which it's I think... It's movie to movie. It's movie yeah. to movie. And what I think we're saying, and you at, you got it exactly with that question, is it's not movie to movie. It's, it's, it's cinema to cinema, but it's animated movie to live action movie. And like we talked about last week with the whole Under the Red Hood thing, animation can do thing live ac- do things live action cannot. And so they, they are inherently different in that way. Uh, yeah, I, and th- that's something – I'm a little torn on it because I would think that the disrespect that animation gets – would lead people to believe that they were very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, why, like, how are you going to disrespect animation? Yeah. But then still think of this as a remake. Exactly. Exactly. Um, That's a great I don't, question. That just, yeah. it seems like very strange to me. Definitely. Do you think maybe because uh, animation is seen as so inferior that, you know, when, when it's um, moving up, they, they basically say, Oh, you know, what's the point of even mentioning the original or something like that? I mean, it, if that were the case, they wouldn't call it a remake at all. They would just call it a new movie, that's right? A, that's a good point. That's a good point. You like, know, they're calling it a remake. They're saying, assuming that they did. I, I was not aware of the, I, I was not aware that people referred to this movie as a remake, uh, just because I'm not, I didn't pay any attention to it. Sure, sure. Um, do, you, do you remember, I'm trying to think of other examples from animation to live action, and unfortunately, Avatar I, The Last Airbender, man. That that, that one is that one. I'm also thinking of like Guy oh, Ritchie's yeah, Aladdin. A, um, that wasn't a remake though, because uh, it it couldn't have been a remake because Avatar: The Last Airbender was never a movie. It was a TV show, and then a, it was made good, into a live action. Movie. That's where they say where I, you're right. I don't think I've ever heard anybody go like, "Oh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, the remake." They say the no. live action or the movie or something. Or like yeah, that. the movie is is sufficient. Uh, but the Aladdin movie was considered a remake. Yeah, that's that's what and I, I'm it getting was the at. Lion King, yeah. The Lion King movie. Lion which... King, yes, yes, we talked about that sometime with, um, oh, probably Frozen, uh, sorry, Frozen, that came up with Disney and stuff like that. Right. Um, but yeah, they called them remakes. 
and that do you think though that it, it's the, because of those the, movies yeah go for it just despite being animated those original movies actually had more respect than a lot of other absolutely yeah movies. um like lion king is seen as a classic um as, and so is aladdin whereas mm-hmm. like anything else that's animated if it, if it wasn't you know, if it wasn't around when, when I was a child, it is a child's thing, whereas opposed to these things that were out when I was a child and I loved them, now they're nostalgic classics or whatever. Ooh, that's a good point. Do you think, because, let's use a, a Lion King and Aladdin as the example here, like, those are, those are classics, um, considered children's movies, I think are through and through children's movies, you know, oh, absolutely. the original ones. But all these people who grew up with them, you know, have so much nostalgia for it that when they get older, I think maybe uh, do you think the word remake to them? Do you think the word remake to them is a shorthand for saying like they remade it for me? You know, like Uh, I I actually I was really overlooking something. A lot of these movies were made so that these people would take their children. Exactly. And that in that sense, in the capitalistic like money making sense, then it is a remake. They are recreating it. It's like a re-release at that point. So that I'll pay to see it, or so that I'll pay for my kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I Um, don't think that, you know, Ghost in the Shell, while there might have been some people who grew up with it and, you know, wanted to see the live action, um, I was not one of them, even though I did grow up with it, I had no interest in the live action. I I don't think they hold, are held in, is, I don't think those same people view it as they view those Disney movies that they watched on loop when they were a child type of thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. Definitely the opinion seems to differ. Well, no, I guess it doesn't. It doesn't differ, and th- and that's the thing that's confusing is like yeah. if if Ghost in the Shell, the original, um, you know, the animated movie that we're talking about today, if it was received different, like because obviously the live action Ghost in the Shell movie wasn't seen as a children's movie. Yes, definitely. I I can't imagine. I mean, it's, it's, it's any more than than Black Widow was seen as a children's movie. Sure, sure. I don't know. That's interesting. Like with the the lack of respect that the animation gets doesn't seem to impact that they then just call that a remake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, that, that's you've brought up an interesting thought that I really don't know. Like remake almost gets thrown around in these days, especially in the era we live in, when so many movies and TV shows are based on previous material or previous IP, I feel like remake gets thrown around so oftenly that, you know, we might use it almost as a colloquialism and everybody understands what we're talking about. But what you're getting at here and what you've brought up is like, well, maybe no, maybe we should be a little more specific with that language. It's almost like remake has become a catch-all, like a like a Band-Aid or a Velcro type of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And for those who don't know what Rob's referring to, those are brand names. Yes. They are not what those objects are called. Yep. yep. Uh, but they have become colloquially what they've been called. Yes. Um, I think was it micro hook and loop or something like that is what what the Velcro attachment is called. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, micro hook and loop. That sounds right. I've heard that <laughs> in a long time, probably since we talked about it, you know, ten years ago or something like that. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, is is. I mean, and that's you know, I'm sure that's fine. Like language adapts, and if yeah. there's no meaningful distinction. Like, obviously, we're making a meaningful distinction here, or at least we are entertaining the idea that there might be a meaningful distinction, so we're discussing it as such. But if you're in a normal, casual conversation, does that matter? 
Uh, probably not. Probably you not. Know? Especially if you're just getting at the, um, you know, oh, like I, I know I've done it before. I would go to somebody and say, hey, did you see the Aladdin remake? They're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, there, there's no real need to clarify it any further. It's when you get into these types of conversations where you go like, well, is it a remake? But, you know, that that's which is a great thing. And I I'm, I'm definitely want to pick some of my friends, other friends, you know, brains about this. Um, but um, I like I said, I feel like it gets thrown around all the time. Like, um. What we didn't we mentioned it sometime ago in an episode where we talked about the um, Robert Downey Jr. Doctor Doolittle movie, which was just called Doolittle. Is that a remake? You know, like no, it, it, that's but it's, a reimagined. I, I know, but because it's so different. But I'm sure there were some people who went like, "Oh, it's the remake of the Eddie Murphy one." And then you have people like me who go, "And the Eddie Murphy one was a remake from the one from the '60s." You know? <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't even remotely a remake. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but now that I come to think of it, like I think at least for a little while, when those live action Disney movies started coming out, I did hear people refer to them as the live action version. I I was thinking the same thing a, a few minutes back that I I have heard some people be a little more careful with that you know um, specification. Right. Um, but I I mean that that might come down to how well versed the person speaking is with movies where I feel like you and I, Ben and Zach included, you know, anyone who had on this podcast, they all will know. They'll be like, Oh, live action version or remake or reimagining or something where I think I, for common people who are just like, like chatting about it, trying to reference it. Remake seems to be the most common version. I, I think it might come down to well, how well versed they are and how much they care. Sure, you know, it, sure. it's like whenever you go see justice league with your grandma and she's like, Oh, is Iron Man in this one? And you're like, <laughs> You know, like, yes, I grandma. get it. Yes. <laughs> like, it's, but um, not until the post credit scene. You spoiled it for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's like she's not in that in that example. She's not as well versed and maybe doesn't care as much. Exactly. At, yeah. at the details. Whereas like 14 year old, you'd be like, fucking Iron Man's not in the Justice League. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, 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 it also it. kind of makes me think of how I get. Uh, I, I get irrationally angry. I won't pull any punches. I get irrationally angry um, when uh, people say that Tim Burton directed The Nightmare Before Christmas because he didn't. But, of course, it is labeled as, if you see any, like, merchandise or posters or even the goddamn VHS box cover, it is labeled Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. So I get where the confusion lies, but they don't know and they don't care. And honestly, I mean, I'll give you that. Why should they care? They should care because Henry Selick's a genius, but... We did a whole month on that prior, so, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question, Ben. I mean, that's something that I think um, we're not really going to get to at any other of our episodes in this series, but I think that's something we should keep in mind. Like, for example, uh, whenever you and I inevitably do get to the Guy Ritchie filmography, I'd love to, you know, think about that more and, and when we get to Aladdin actually talk about that. And, I mean, oh, as no. we get even more uh, remakes and stuff like that. We, we missed an opportunity, Rob. Was the Batman with Robert Pattinson a Ooh. remake of the WB cartoon titled The Batman? That's a that's a good that's a good question. I okay. How about this? I think it was a remake of Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever, but it was a reimagining of Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, <laughs> <laughs> and it was an adaptation of, <laughs> of the Michael the Batman. Keaton Batman oh. from the eighties. <laughs> So I mean, and that that also goes into the question: is like, does the do two works having the same title and being related to each other in that way does that matter? Yeah, um, yeah. Because obviously, question. just having the same title is not enough. A la Frozen I, and Frozen. Yep, yep. But I don't. I don't know. I could see. 
the animated Frozen as a remake of the of the live action. Oh, Frozen. I mean, a hundred percent. Do you remember in the in the live action version when the guy falls off the ski lift and breaks his legs, and you know the wolves come out to play with him and go, "Do you want to build a snowman?" You know that whole scene. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think it's like it's like yes. a one to one. I might say, you know, uh, Disney's yeah, Disney's Frozen might even just be like a like a reprint, like a facsimile of the 2010 Frozen. Um, <laughs> there, there really wasn't that big of a difference. I mean, I, I yeah. think it's also very telling that um, on both Patreon and and the main feed, I just copy the audio for those two episodes <laughs> um, oh i guess that's a good is a good time as you need to shout out to patreon yes uh, if you want to if you want to hear the episode where we talk about the version of frozen where somebody falls out of a ski lift and gets eaten <laughs> by wolves uh that ask him if he wants to build a snowman that's on the patreon that's on the patreon uh yes uh, uh patreon's great there's some awesome stuff over there definitely go check it out um and um i know we'll probably have to find some animated-esque thing to talk about again, whether it be a fan request or otherwise to tie in for this uh, this month. So, uh, yeah, but everybody, patreon.com slash cinemodities. Uh, you get access to a whole bunch of more bonus episodes. What the fuck am I saying, Ben? One episode every month of the Patreon is about an animated thing. What is wrong yeah, with that's, me? <laughs> I, was, I was wondering. I was like, Adventure Time doesn't count? The, the um, fact, because we bank, we have so many of those episodes already banked that I haven't like edited one of them in so long, I just kind of forgot. <laughs> um i was actually going to ask you do you think that the patreon is a remake of the main feed (laughs) everybody knows the cinemati's restaurant is uh in the same location in times square where the restaurant mars 2112 used to be is the cinemati's restaurant a reimagining of mars 2112 (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Now, now we're going down the rabbit hole. Okay, that's a great question, though, Ben. I'm actually that's something I didn't think about. That um, I just like I said colloquially, I was saying remake for the um the 2017 version. But that's a really interesting point that we will have to keep in the back of our heads for this discussion. Um, if anything else pops up, and for going forward, that's a really neat neat idea. Um, I did want to ask you, have you ever seen the 2017 Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett Johansson? I I have not. Okay. I haven't either. I mean, I like I said, I didn't really have any interest in it. Um, it's one of those things where it's like there's some movies that I hold in such high regard. Like, for example, I've never seen the RoboCop remake. I think that's fair in that case because they're both live action. Now I'm – Ben, you're making me question myself now. <laughs> never seen the Total Recall remake because there's some movies where I'm like they did it perfectly the first time. There's a whole – like. The director, the style in that original, it has such an important fingerprint that I don't want to see anybody's uh, take on it, that type of thing. Sure. Um, so, okay, I think that's enough said about the 2017 version. Like I said, we had to rip the Band-Aid off, and I'm glad we did. got us to a great point that you made with that question. Um, but here, here's my next question, Ben, because I was the one, kind of, when we were planning this um, animation series, like last week we said, Under the Red Hood, we both love it. It gets at our thesis about this. We have to do it. And I think Ghost in the Shell was the one where I was like, Ben, we have to do this one. You know, I I was the one who was like, this is such an important movie. I think, you know, in terms of animation, in terms of animated storytelling, and in terms of cultural impact, kind of, once again, the three big things I want to get into here, I was just like, Ben, we're doing it. And you were like, okay, but here's my question. Had you ever seen it before? I, I'm pretty sure that you told me you had at least known about it. You were aware of this the animated movie's existence. But correct me if I'm wrong there. But have you ever watched it before? I had not watched Ooh, it before. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm to be honest, I don't know that I'm old enough to watch it now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with how many titties there are in this movie? Okay, I I'm also glad you got there because last week we made the joke where we said we're doing the adult animation series. 
But no, everybody, that does not mean erotica or anything like that. You know, this means like animation is a medium for adults and not just for children. And then my literal second note as I was watching this movie is the words animated titties. <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of animated titties, but I have to say. These are some non-sexualized titties. Very much non-sexual. The entire uh, movie non-sexual, you know? I didn't even pop the slightest boner. I think, you know, uh, Kusunagi's breasts are the one we see the most throughout the movie. There's no nipples. When we do see nipples on the puppet master who's taken the body over the um, interpreter, it, it's, it is like breasts with nipples, but it's also paired by being just a torso with a bunch of wires coming out of it. Like, right. it's very non-sexualized. So everybody, okay, yes, animated titties, we're getting there. Okay, everybody, I'm sure you, if you want to watch this movie, because you've never seen it before, no, throw out all the cool themes. It's got animated titties. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> if you want to watch this movie because you've never seen animated titties before. Yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> there, are, there are other movies to watch if you have never if you want to see animated titties. Definitely. Uh, the but, animated titties yeah. in this movie don't even bounce, I don't think, which is very atypical for Japanese animated yes, titties. Yes, yes, but a very, very non-sexual movie. I think very purposely non-sexual. I think, you know, that this... Uh, even though the, the themes of reproduction and how reproduction like informs the definition of life, which I'm sure we'll get to, it it is very much a um, I I, I don't want to say scientific, I want to say like mechanical look at physical forms, um, that type of thing. Uh, not only because of the actual cyborg nature of it, but I think the movie in and itself is mechanical and almost maybe meticulous is a better way to put it. Um, but that's something we can get to with the themes and things like that. But I, I kind of had a sense that, Ben, you had never seen this before. Um, and um, I think that was one of the reasons I even pushed harder for us covering it, because I've wanted to talk about this for a while. When Zach and I did foreign animation way back when, like first year of the podcast, I think maybe third or fourth month, I really wanted to do Ghost in the Shell, but Zach had never seen it. Zach had seen Akira. Akira is another very important work of anime, uh, Japanese animation, and um, I love Akira as well. Uh, not as much as I love Ghost in the Shell, but we did that, and so Ghost in the Shell just had to get put on the back burner till you know finally we we made it to here. We made it now, you know, four years later, whatever it is. Um, so I have to ask Ben. Like I said, there's there's points I want to make. There's things we're going to talk about with animation, but I am really excited to know what you thought about this movie because. It's an it's a very important adult animated movie that you haven't seen before, and of course, you know when you give when you give us your thoughts about that, I can't wait to see you know how you think this fits in the uh, the world of adult animation. Also, anime. I know you're a big you know anime fan, or uh, maybe not huge, but you know you love it. And I just overall, like, what'd you think? Like with how much I've hyped it up to you, I think you know in leading up to this episode. Uh, so please let us know. I'm like overall thoughts. What'd you think of Ghost in the Shell, 1995? Um, overall, I'm. Definitely enjoyed the movie. I I thought a lot of the themes that it touched on were interesting. I was um, definitely excited to see those themes, be, especially because we're talking about you know an adult animated, uh, again not porn, a, a movie, that, an animated movie that's made for adult enjoyment. That still doesn't sound right. I don't know how we're how to say that. Um, not for ch- fuck. That doesn't sound right either. I, right, right. I I think the closest thing we've got is what I what I talked about a little bit last week, where I was saying that I think animation is surreal, not surreal, but surreal. The French on top of reality type of thing. Like it's heightening. Mm-hmm. An, it's animation is heightening. Like we talked about under Red Hood, heightening things in a way that you know we can't experience otherwise in the real world. Sure. Well, and and that's something uh, I think that this being uh, 96 or 95. Yeah, 95. uh, Animation animation film. um, I think that we will get we'll see a lot of that, especially because 
what you could do with animation far outpaced what you could do with uh, like what are they called whenever you have actual effects instead of CGI practical effects oh, practical yeah sure, uh, sure. or or um, or CGI so so definitely I, I thought like this was a good exemplar of that I I did notice a couple things where it seems like maybe they were talking through their brains like doing the the cybernetic communication yeah. just so they could avoid animating mouth movement as often as possible mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um which i understandable you know it's not the cheapest thing to do but o- overall I, I definitely liked it i was a little disappointed with the ending though um really okay yeah I, okay and I, I hopefully i can kind of formulate it uh, sure. well enough um but essentially it just felt explained and then done like it was told and not shown i guess gotcha okay, okay. Uh, which i didn't love but that's something like I, I think the audience has to be aware that's something that happens a lot with japanese animation anime in particular there is a lot of explaining things yes very much so exposition is um it, it's it's treated very differently i've found in anime especially with hayao miyazaki stuff um exposition is not i think in america in north america once again uh really america though um, exposition is seen very often as a crutch where I think that's like a cultural thing. I think in, in Japan, even in European animation, I think also in, um, well, not so much French animation, but Sylvain Chaumet might be different in that way because Sylvain Chaumet does a lot of silent movies where you literally can't have exposition. But I, I think in, in other countries, exposition in general in animation or otherwise is not seen as a crutch or a detriment it's seen as almost a necessity and i think that's a cultural difference you might be right i don't have enough evidence to suggest you're not sure but i I might disagree with entire cultures on the subject i think exposition um well okay i think there are certain situations like in anime where they're doing some kind of crazy ninjutsu sure and there's no way to explain it without you know, if, but it, it always comes across to me as like, oh, look how smart I am, and I've always uh, found that kind of kind sure. of annoying. Um, and I also think just like in terms of storytelling, stories are more enjoyable when they're not slowed down by exposition. And sure. I, I yeah. don't know that that is something that I am willing to admit is subjective, or or willing to concede as subjective rather. Um, okay, because I, I I think that might be an objective truth. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if we're ready for that discussion yet um, because we have a lot more to say about Ghost in the Shell. And that's also very interesting um, because also you know me, Ben, and the Sidham audience knows me. I love people talking in rooms and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I don't like visuals. And I, I, I also think, you know, like we've talked about with Searching. Of course, Searching, our episode, there's two episodes on that movie on the Patreon. Um, that is a movie that is very heavily based in people talking about expo- and giving exposition to well, each other. So I, but I, the- I want to be clear. Okay. When I say exposition, I don't mean talking. Like, you can have a com- like a, a scene that is just dialogue oh, sh- that sure. isn't yeah. exposition. Definitely, um, definitely, yeah. Where it's like you are allowed or enabled to discern things based on the conversation but they are not outright telling you things. And that's that's the the point where it's like with exposition, I'm just like, I get a little, like, just, you know, let, put me in a situation where I can discern that. 
Sure. That's what I want. Sure, sure. I, I, I think, I feel like, you know, we're, we're dancing around it, so we might as well mention it. The thing that we always mention when it comes to exposition, um, like in a medical show, when one doctor is telling the other doctor something they should clearly know, and you can tell that it's being done for the sake of the audience. That's very different from, you know, two characters having an exchange of dialogue that is expanding on not only the story, but their characters themselves. That's what you're getting right. at? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, an example, I think, is, is Dr. House versus ER, like... Sure. Uh, house, you know, it's like they're having a diagnostic conversation. And for one, they don't know the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess maybe that's that's another way to describe it is is if it's you can tell it's exposition when one person knows the answers. Um, gotcha. OK, that, that's a good point. I see what you're saying. Sure. So in, anyway, OK, I, no, I I'm, I'm I, with the conversation you. is a great aspect of movies. And I and I don't I don't want it to be misconstrued that I don't enjoy a good talking scene. Absolutely. Uh, no, no, de- definitely not. No, no, I, that, that wasn't what I was implying, and I'm, I'm glad you clarified that, that type of thing. Um, but like I said also, I, I don't know if we're ready to have that conversation. Maybe, maybe the thing is, is that what I find in foreign animation and their exposition, when you have one character who's giving a lot of details, I've never really thought about it in the way that you just posed about like one character knowing the answer. That might be something I have to go back and think about a little bit more. But... I, I find it more that when that's happening, let's take this movie, Ghost in the Shell, for example, like the whole scene when um, uh, Kusunagi talks a lot in this movie about how she, like you said, she doesn't know if she ever really was human, that type of thing. Um, her right. conversations with Batu, like on the boat, like after she goes diving and things like that, um, I think those are very much exposition scenes, but they're exposition scenes in the sense of getting at the themes of this movie. It's not just somebody in a horror movie going, ah, I'm glad you came to my office. I have everything you need to know about this demon in your television set or something like that, you know? It, it's that they don't have the answers. I think they're, like, talking out loud to search for the answers in this movie, whereas in, right. like, an American horror movie, they're giving exposition in a very similar way, speaking very matter-of-factly, but it's they're speaking matter-of-factly in the sense of, you know, ah, yes, I cashed that demon out 60 years ago, and now it's back to haunt this town, where Kusanagi well, is saying things very matter-of-factly because that is how she feels and how she, and what she believes, but you can tell that there is uncertainty behind those very powerful statements. Well, and I'm glad you brought up that particular scene because I don't think of that scene as being like heavily uh, exposition. Okay. Okay. Or exposition. heavy. I think that, I think that scene is a, is an exploratory conversation. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, think, I, I think that's what happens more in foreign animation. Not always. Cause I know this is where it came off of you saying there were some scenes you thought were a little too expository. Not always. There are exposition scenes. Don't get me wrong, but I think foreign animation, specifically anime, you know, does a lot of that dialogue scenes or one character speaking very, very, like, giving a monologue very didactically, and it's to exemplify their character more than, while also conveying information. Well, so, I mean, an example that that really comes to mind quickly is, like, any fight in Naruto, there's going to be a moment where somebody does a technique and somebody else doesn't understand it, and then they're going to stand there and talk for four minutes about the the details of this technique, and it's like, I mean, okay, I get it. Like, your technique's cool or whatever, but, like, why doesn't he just kill you right now while you're standing here talking? Sure, Like, that's yeah. when it disrupts the action. I guess that's something else. I, okay, I'm, like, I'm glad you used that example because that is where I think the, to bring it back to what we said, what, five minutes ago now, the cultural differences come into play because I think 
in something like Naruto, in One Piece, even in, from what I know about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is a popular anime now, I think anime in general, especially these like you know episodic ones, like we're talking about, I think to to you and I, because I don't disagree with you. It's the same thing with Dragon Ball, even Yu Gi Oh, the anime. You know, one duel, one fight takes a week. You know, in terms of episodes, like seven episodes, because they have to talk to each other so much. We see that as slowing down the action, as, you know, dragging the story on, as exposition, to use that flair word once again. But I think culturally, they're doing it because that's the point of their artistic creation to them, is that I think the person who created Naruto, whose name I don't remember, I'm sorry, I don't think they care about keeping the action going. I don't think they care as, well, they do care, but they don't care as much about keeping the action going. They don't care as much as about making like a really, you know, well-choreographed and well-oriented fight scene like in Under the Red Hood. They care so much about the lore and the world they've created that the most important thing is getting the chance to explain Everything that's going on with the hand motions, with the energy they're pulling on, with the energy they're pulling on from their ancestors, like, not ancestors, but like the demon fox inside Naruto. I think there's just a cultural difference in in what matters to them as storytellers. Uh, I, I'm sure that you're right. I, I don't I still don't know that I'm ready to concede the point because like I know like writing 101, you know, that's that's bad storytelling. Like that's in that is, could be cultural. I'm not going to okay, say that. Exactly. That's but, my question for you. Just like you posed me the question that we're going to have to think about for the rest of our lives. Is it a remake or a reimagining type of thing? That's what I want to pose to you is writing 101 that you just mentioned, which, of course, is just a, a, a word to capture this idea. We're saying isn't writing 101 culturally different? Like isn't write writing 101 in Japan different from what it is in France, different from what it is in Ireland, different from what it is in America? Probably. That's where uh, I'm coming from. I it just that feels like that feels like something that has to be that is like inherently true to me that the story is better if you can show it, not tell it. Sure. But I sure. but I mean in terms like you're right, like they care more about the lore than um you know, in, in a lot of situations where this comes up, it's like, you know, do do we need you to tell us that she has cancer or can you just show us that she, mm. you know, surreptitiously takes some pills and then like replaces her hat over her like bald head. Sure. It's like, you know, you, you we can kind of draw conclusions from that. Um, so it's like, yeah, you, I, I guess in that sense, I feel like you're, you're dumbing it down for the audience. If you tell if you're just outright like, Oh, you know, my cancer treatment, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas you can let them kind of infer it from, from the other scenario where, whereas with Naruto, it's like, there's not a way to just infer all of that information. Sure, sure. Because that information isn't based on a real thing. Exactly, uh, exactly. I'm with you, I'm with you. So I and, – and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I, like, inherently hate that stuff. I've watched a lot of Naruto, and I've <laughs> uh, I've definitely, you know, at times enjoyed – but it, but there's always part of me that's just like, you're just bragging, you know? You're just like, look how cool I am. I did this thing with the snakes. Sure, and, yeah, and yeah. Stuff, and it's like – yeah, man, we get it. Like you, you got powers. Like everybody has powers. You know, this is Naruto. Why are you uh, special? You know, yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know. That's anyway. I'm that's, with you. That's... I'm with you. No, that was a, that was a great thing to bring up because I think that's that's um one of the reasons that when we did this um you know animation as a uh, adult form. God, you're right. It doesn't sound good. Um, but <laughs> you know that we're, we we want to talk about this because you know there's there's clearly not only. 
maybe maybe I should put it this way. I feel like Ben, whenever you and I do, you know, a live action movie that we've done for you know what year and a half now since you've been on, even probably longer, um, we're in agreement about these things. Like there's there's certain ways to tell these stories that you know the language of cinema dictates and things like that. I think that's one of the coolest things is that even though you know you and I clearly, I hope it's clear to the cinema audience, love this animation, love the medium. We still even have like th- this medium lets us dive into ideas that we still don't fully agree on with each other, you know? Sure. Where a live-action movie makes it so cut and dry sometimes, where it really comes down to, like, I think of, well, Southland Tales is my go-to example. That's a very opinionated movie between the two of us. Um, I only say the two of us because I, I like to think that Justin has never seen that movie uh, and has never commented on it ever. As but, far as I know, he hasn't seen it. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> you ain't kidding. Um, but like also Neon Demon. I think there's a lot of things about Neon Demon we both agreed with and appreciated or did not appreciate in the way that movie was created. But then a lot of it else comes down to opinion where we just have to be like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, we just like different things. Where animation, I think, you know, we're getting at the idea of, like, this this medium allows for such grand-scale experience. You know, it's the sore real notion that I was talking about before, on top of reality. And it's still, it's just like, you know, like you said, you know, the cultural thing. You're like, I don't know if you're right or not, you know? I don't know if you're wrong or not, because I've never thought about it that way. And it's like, same thing you're saying about some of this stuff. And that's just the fucking coolest thing to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you... If you're not an anxious mess and you're okay with uncertainty, you know, that's... This show's for you, yes. (laughs) The Cinemodities Restaurant is for you. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up, like, Naruto and stuff like that, because that that actually gets into something that I I really want to talk about with this movie. Um, One of the reasons that not only did I want to actually watch it so you would get to see it, because I I knew you'd appreciate it. I know we're going to have some very interesting thoughts on the themes of this movie. Um, But I think, like I mentioned last week... This is also something I've always really wanted to talk about because I think it is so important in the cultural imprint of anime and Japanese animation uh, to America. So I think for everybody in our age range, you know, maybe even a little younger, definitely I would say a little older, you know, you grew up in the 90s, grew up in the early 2000s, that type of thing. Um, If you don't think 9-11 was just like a meme, you're, you're probably in the age range I'm talking about. I think one of the biggest reasons that anime is successful or or very well-known, like not seen as niche, not seen as nerdy, I think a lot of people know what anime is, and even if they don't enjoy it, they are very well aware of it and see it as a as a art form or something like that. I mean, hell, Crunchyroll or Funimation, whatever they're called now, the, the streaming service for anime, is huge. I think it has a lot of market share. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons for that is back in the early 2000s, Toonami... The Cartoon Network late night, it was basically the buffer between Cartoon Network kids, like back in the day, and Adult Swim. Toonami would play the the animation dubs of Naruto, of One Piece, of Zatch Bell. They played a show called Bo-Bo-Bo-Bo-Bo-Bo was on there. You know, like, that was such a big thing. I know I've talked about it before. That's where I first found Spirited Away. I remember seeing commercials for Spirited Away on Cartoon Network because it was going to be playing on Toonami, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, that's really the reason I know about anime, because I was watching okay. anime on there before, you know. What, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there there was a lot of stuff on there. Am, am like, I just you know. am I just pulling memories back to you now, Ben? It's all, oh, it's yeah, all coming I watched, back to you. <laughs> yeah. I watched a lot of Toonami. 
Oh, God, so did I. And, I mean, it was great. I mean, that's where I found about Naruto. Like I said, Spirited Away. I mean, that was really the thing that um, when I was spending time in comic book shops and Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments when I was a kid around the same time, I don't think I ever would have... Like, no one introduced me to anime or manga or anything like that, other than the Yu-Gi-Oh-related ones. But like I've said to you before, Ben, we didn't buy, like, Shonen Jump magazine to read the manga. We bought it to get the cards that came with them type of thing. Um, oh, yeah. Yu Yu Hakusho was a big one from Toonami that I, I still love. I rewatched Yu Yu Hakusho like three years ago. It's so good. Um, but I think Toonami is a very, very big part of why, you know, anime got a foot in the door in American culture. And now it's no longer a foot in the door. Now it's a full blown, I think, pillar of American culture. I mean, it, it's kind of weird to me that when I go out and talk to people, like, I've had students that I've taught before, you know, in the last two years that are actively and openly, not like it's a nerdy topic or anything, they're not ashamed of it, talking about One Punch Man, Attack on Titan, um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Attack on Titan was a big one, yeah. Yes, Attack on Titan was huge, absolutely. Um, and and, I, and I, I think that, you know, Toonami is basically the reason that that started. And I wanted to even track this down a little bit more, and there's there's not too much... Info, I mean, like, we're still waiting on a really good documentary about the history of Toonami, but from what I have found in my time researching this, which is not just for this episode, but for my, you know, whole appreciation of anime in general, um, the people who were programming Toonami in the early 2000s to include all this anime, who were the same people that had to go to Cartoon Network Corporate and pitch them the idea of buying the rights to play these things in America, like, that's a big business decision. And Toonami was successful at doing it. And from everything I've found, the reason Toonami exists as an anime platform is because those people were wildly and immensely inspired by Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell was the movie to them that they saw and said, this is amazing, I love it, and it's a true crossover. So I just wanted to put that out there. But I also want to say that back in the day, Ghost in the Shell, when it was released in 1995, was released as a way to expand Japanese animation to other countries. It was released simultaneously, which is so rare, not even back then, but also today, that movies get released in different territories on the same date. You know, it's usually like, oh, um, what the, the Demon Hunter movie from Japan from two years ago that um, broke the record. It, it's, it's now the highest grossing movie in Japan. It um, dethroned Spirited Away being the high, highest grossing movie for 20 years or something like that. Um, that movie came out in Japan first. And then it came out in America and other places. and even got limited release in America. But Ghost in the Shell, back in 1995, came out on the same day, maybe not, you know, same day, maybe same week because of time zone differences and stuff like that, in Japan, the UK, and the US. And it was in order to, like, branch that medium out to other audiences. They, they really wanted to say, like, oh... I think it also has to go with Akira, which is from the 80s. Back to Akira, Akira was very successful in Japan, and it got, like, bootlegged in America, became, like, a convention favorite or, like, an at-home favorite, and they started to say, like, oh, we could actually maybe do something, get a wider audience. Um, it's basically, like, the reverse from what the whole Disney-Marvel thing did. You know, this was Japan trying to reach us in North America, where, you know, Disney and Marvel do the whole thing of trying to reach Japan through their movies, which they were very successful with. Um, mm -hmm. But that was the point of this movie. That was one of their ideas. It wasn't the point in the creation, but it was the point in the marketing and the advertising and the release structure. And sure. um, this, this uh, 
this attempt was a massive failure. This movie bombed at the box office. Um, I think the movie costs, you know, 15, 17 million. I don't see it in my notes right now. I'll correct myself if I need to. Um, it made maybe like seven million at the box office. Like it did not recoup its budget anywhere near it, even with marketing. Is, is that is that just in the U.S. or is that? That's everywhere. That's worldwide. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So even, even in, in Japan even where this would have already been. Exactly. I'm glad you picked up on that, Ben, because that's another another big point about this is that this, this movie did not get well received in Japan. And um, a little bit more on that later. But it wasn't a hit at the box office. And so they were kind of like, oh, like, man, like bummer type of thing. And, and, you know, life goes on. This movie became a massive success on home video. It was a, 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 originally like a cult following. I think it's now more of a classic following. I don't think you can call it cult anymore or niche. But in the late 90s, when this movie went to home video on VHS, eventually went to DVD in like the early 2000s, um, maybe, you know, 2000, something like that, this movie became a massive success and made its budget like 10 times over on home video. Like oh, wow. the VHS and DVD sales for this in its first like month were like 43 million or something like that. Whoa. Like this movie, something didn't work at the box office, but clearly the right people found it and the word spread. The word spread like wildfire. And eventually within like the first five years of its release, it becoming this um, massive home, uh, home video success, it, it became a staying point. It was uh, like I said, to, you know, take it to my experience this was the one that when I was getting into anime because of Toonami, and I love Naruto, I love Yu Yu Hakusho, hell, even though I didn't really watch, like, Zatch Bell, One Piece, or all those other Toonami shows a lot, <laughs> I would still check them out because I was into that art form. I was into that medium and stuff like that. And, oh, Dragon Ball Z. I also have to say, I love Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. I don't want oh, to forget that one. Probably one of the most important, if not the most important anime of all time. Um, but, you know, I, and... I wasn't the one who sought out Ghost in the Shell. When I was starting to like anime because of Toonami, I had other people start to say to me, oh, you should check out Akira. You should check out Ghost in the Shell. You should check out, you know, all these other famous ones. And that's where I really kind of fell in love with it. And um, and I think based on, you know, my little timeline I gave earlier, um, Akira to some extent, Ghost in the Shell being such a worldwide home video success grows into Toonami and then eventually creates the culture of anime that we have today. And I have to say, this is this is what I love to why I love to talk about anime and, and OG anime in this way. This is Ghost in the Shell 1995 is the California role of anime. So for anyone that is not aware, for years sushi's been around forever. Everybody knows what sushi is: sushi, sashimi, nigiri, like all those different forms of raw fish. The Japanese, the Asian dish, I should say. There was so long in. North America, even in Europe, even I think in like Africa and parts closer to Asia, this was a disgusting idea to eat raw fish. To eat raw fish with seaweed, you know, a sushi roll. There was just this whole notion that this is a dish that is, you know, enjoyed by barbarians type of thing. <laughs> and culturally, sushi was just frowned upon. I would say, you know, poo-pooed even in America and things like that. And if you go back and do your food history, which I, I did not spend as much time as I could have on, should have and could have, there's this whole idea about how people, you know, from Asia coming to America, coming to Britain, coming to Europe, trying to introduce sushi, trying to introduce these cuisines, and it was just a thing of, like, 
uh, it was almost cultural. I mean, it was the thing of saying like, oh my God, you want me to eat raw fish? That's disgusting. Food needs to be cooked, you know? The, um, the very American idea of, you know, of, of well-done burgers, well-done steaks, things need to be cooked. Steaks is not the greatest example, but I think you know what I mean, Ben. And it took until, I'm pretty sure the late 80s, when somebody, whose name I did not write down, somebody invented the California roll. The Americanized version of sushi just to get their foot in the door, just to get the foot in the door of sushi and what that could be. And of course, California roll, you know, which is not raw fish. I think it's what, fake crab meat, cucumber, avocado, seaweed, and rice. You know, it's, it's like not sushi at all. It's something I don't even like to eat when I eat sushi, even though that's what I started with. The California roll is basically like the ghost in the shell, or the ghost in the shell is basically the California roll, is that it did the right thing. It wedged in where it needed to go to get the right people hooked so they could say in a few years, hey, let's expand on this, you know? Oh, it's almost like, you know, I feel like the the tsunami thing was people going, man, Ghost in the Shell is so good. We should get more anime. You know, I love Naruto. I love this. I love these other things. Let's get them to a wider audience. Let's get them to American audiences. I feel like you had the same thing with chefs in America. They saw the California roll. They saw its success, and they go, why stop at imitation crab meat? Why not put a piece of tuna in there? Why not put a piece of salmon in there? Why not put cream cheese in there? You know, make the Philly roll, as it's called now. And, like, it basically tricked people into seeing this medium slash dish as a legitimate form to uh, an art form or a form of cuisine, which is also an art form. And it eased the foreigners into it to give it the space, the market share that it has now. And... Uh, that's my analogy. I'm sticking to it, Ben. I love that analogy. I've had that thought for many years. I'm so glad I finally get to lay it on this podcast. Um, what, do you, what do you think? <laughs> it sounds a lot like when the uh, Christians were trying to convert the pagans, and they were like, actually, this <laughs> crucifix is just Thor's hammer with a little nub on top of it. Uh, okay. So I don't know as much already, about that one, but uh, that You're one, already familiar with it. Yes, so. yes, yes. It, it's it's the easing in, I think. I'm glad I hit at the end there. I think the uh, that's the way to do it, is you ease these different cultures into your thing and eventually they start running with it and sure they might say like oh it's our idea all along you know or stupid cultural differences like that but at least it got them got the foot in the door opened the door and here we go god if anybody ever thinks that anime was an american ideal all along it's going to be after my death i think oh i mean well they're they're, yeah they're fucked Uh, anybody who actually thinks that you know they're like that that's i mean same with same with suit like that's going to be long after i'm dead yes yes that, that somebody I hope that somebody has that that opinion um, or belief. Now, now the other the other thing on this on this analogy that I want to highlight because you brought it up and like I said, I was glad you caught on to it. That even in Japan at the time of this movie's release, it was not very well received. I mean, it was positively received. I mean, people liked this movie, but it was not a financial success like we mentioned. Even in Japan, and I think that only adds to my analogy of the California roll because I like the California roll. I don't know for certain. I've only been to Thailand once. I did not eat any sushi when I was there. Ate a lot of other like like pad thai, street noodles, that type of thing. But I would imagine that if you go anywhere in in Asia, you can't get a California roll. You know, it's like the idea that Chinese food here to us in America doesn't exist in China, type of thing. I kind of see that. I think that adds to the analogy because even still to this day, Ben. Ghost in the Shell is more highly credited or highly reviewed by critics everywhere other than Japan. This is like a middling anime movie in Japan. 
that that seems pretty reasonable to me, actually. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I I liked it, but I've seen the I've seen a lot of anime. Sure. And this is not anywhere near the top. Right. Right. I of, mean, it, it's so different from what I think. You know, now us speaking in this like twenty fifteen to twenty twenty two era that we're in, this is not really what we think of as anime anymore because it's so. Like, once again, like, I think, like, the California role, it is somewhat Americanized. It is somewhat, you know, culturized. Tame tame is a great way to put it. And, um, I I mean, that, while I agree with you that, you know, it isn't the best, I mean, I actually kind of think, like, like, Yu Yu Hakusho is better than this. I love Yu Yu Hakusho. And that's that's a very, you know, type, uh, very different type of, it's a TV show and not um, not a movie. But I think my love for this movie only grows because of how, you know, over the years I've I've come to see it as this this California role of anime that, you know, even though it's not the best, well, we'll also get into the themes of this movie, which have only become more important to me as I've gotten older. But I think there is something in in terms of like cultural placement and like historical standpoint of this movie that makes me love it so much because of what I just laid out about that, you know, it being the foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I mean I, I could definitely see that it's um I, I would have to agree, Yu Yu Hakusho, um, even Naruto, like there's a lot of better stuff out there. Um, but as an entry point, this would have been a solid entry point for me if I had seen this before I had seen other anime. Sure, sure. I think there's something, um, maybe now to use that as a transition point, I think there's very much something um, in, in regards to it being an entry point that we should mention. I think that this not being very lore-heavy, um, of course, there's lore. Don't get me wrong. I mean, lore, I mean, like, storytelling. I mean, uh, sorry, uh, world building, I guess is what I should yeah. say. You know, the whole idea of some people are just people. Some people are have cybernetic enhancements. But a lot of people have this, um, you know, kind of, uh, like, brain attachment that lets them connect to a network or connect to the Internet or use technology. People's brains can be hacked. Their memories can be faked and things like that. We can even change their their perception of the world and things of that nature. That world building exists, but it's nothing like it, it's much more, I think, tan- not not tangible. I, I can't think of the right word, but it, more understandable, more acceptable, acceptable? For, accessible is a good word, more acceptable for American audiences, because there's never a point in this movie where I think, you know, this is why this needs to be the foot in the door for Toonami to go off the to really get the ball rolling. And um, with Naruto, there's no point in this movie where you have anything where Naruto is like, and the nine-tailed fox gives me my chakra and I challenge my, I focus my chakra to create the Rasengan. Or, you know, I'm using, Nar- I haven't seen Naruto in forever. But you know what I mean? There's never a point I mean, where it gets fantastic. A, a lot of that was pretty on the nose. <laughs> like, Woo! Okay, good. Good. I earned, my, yeah. I earned my keep. I pulled that out of the deep, dark parts of my brain. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, this movie is very technologically grounded. It's very sound, I think, in what it's talking about. It might be confusing at certain points for some people, I'm sure, that, you know, because it is a very fast-paced story. But there's never a point where you have to get into mysticism, into fantasy. There's always some grounding. And I think that is a very important part of why it was received so well. Probably, yeah, I mean, probably like that. It definitely makes it easier to hold on to. Yeah, yeah. And that's always going to be, you know, a useful thing, I guess, for for making somebody for for getting, like you said, a foot in the door, getting exactly. people to, to start accepting a media. Exactly, exactly. Before we, we have to jump into the actual because th- the themes of this movie, I really want to pick your brain on Ben and and the animation we have to talk about as well because I think the animation is very different from what we did uh, talked last week with Under the Red Hood. But I do have to mention, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Another 
clear reason that I love this movie so much. It is a direct and and very, not a direct just because, oh, you watch it and you can tell, but a, a cited inspiration for the Wachowskis on their creation of The Matrix. It's a very famous quote where they said, um, th- they were fans of anime for years. I mean, the Wachowskis, Ben, if you if you were not aware, if anyone doesn't remember from Zach and I did it, um, the Wachowskis were actual comic book writers before they were directors. So they were always into animation. They were always into foreign, a Japanese animation. And there's a very famous quote. Uh, they had an interview, and they were like, you know, a very rare interview from the Wachowskis. And they said, we saw Ghost in the Shell and said to ourselves, we want to do that, but in live action. <laughs> and okay. um, and a lot of the action, a lot of it's very similar. I mean, the whole idea of artificial intelligence and what does that mean or how does that inform the definition of life is a huge part of The Matrix. And of course, you know, I, that's another reason I love this movie because The Matrix movies are basically my biblical texts. But another thing that I found in my research for this recording that I didn't know before this that I wanted to bring up, because I think maybe, Ben, this will make us feel better about calling this adult animation series. Um, From James Cameron, Jimmy C. himself, guy who made Terminator, guy who made Avatar, guy who made Titanic, guy who made uh, True Lies, everything. Zach and I have talked about him plenty on this podcast. He has a quote about this movie. And he said, in regards to 1995's Ghost in the Shell, it is, quote, the first truly adult animation film to reach a level of literary and visual excellence. Hmm. And uh, one, uh, James Cameron is a pretentious motherfucker. Um, he has his, own, has his own head up his ass, I think, 99% of the time. But he makes great movies. I mean, Terminator 1 is fantastic. Terminator 2 and Aliens are overrated pieces of garbage. We don't need to, you know, get back on that because everybody hates when I talk about that. Um, But, Ben, I just wanted to highlight that because he calls it an adult animation film. (laughs) Yeah. So we have someone else uh, who is with us on the, uh, the idea of calling it adult animation. Even though it doesn't sound good, at least we got it in there. So... Ben, here's my next question. Let's get into the actual movie. We had a lot of the preamble. I'm I'm glad you liked it. You enjoyed it, that type of thing. I understand what we just said about how it's not maybe the best, but there's a reason. Its cultural, historical place is so important. Here's my next question. Did you watch the sub or the dub of this movie for this recording? Oh, I watched the dub. Okay. I I figured you would. It seems like from... This is another question. Um, I... This isn't streaming anywhere. I mean, it might be on like well, I don't even think it's on like Crunchyroll. Like, because I, I Google like where to watch Ghost in the Shell, and it was like the Scarlett Johansson one, and I was like, oh fuck you, nineteen ninety five, you know that type of thing. Um, but from what I found, this is rentable on Amazon. Uh, Amazon, yes. yeah. Is that where you watched it? It is okay. So that's why I watched it as well because I was actually very upset that uh, I thought I had a copy of this on my hard drive and I did not. Which I don't understand what happened because I've seen this movie many times before. But I also rented it off of Amazon. And as far as I could tell, I didn't like go digging into it for a reason I'll get to. It it starts, like it defaults to the dub. And I, I don't even think there was an option, which I've seen on Amazon before with other anime things, Japanese animation things, where when you start the movie, it gives you the choice. Or when you rent it, it gives you the choice of which version to rent. Uh, I've never seen it give me the choice of which one to rent, but I have seen uh, where it actually has both audio tracks. Sure, sure. And you just select the language you want the audio to be in, and then you also select the language you want the subtitles to be in. 
So, so Ben, what you're saying is uh, in direct contradiction to what I, you just answered my question. You watched uh, this with Japanese audio and Portuguese subtitles. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, one one thing I will say though is when I have seen this, uh, there are times that if you watch the watch it with the English audio and the English subs, they will not match up even remotely. Mm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. They, they express the same sentiment most of the time, but the, it's like the English, uh, subtitles are more directly the, you know, uh, Japanese audio. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, and that, that's a big thing. That's a, that's something that I feel like if we ever, well, not if we ever, whenever you and I inevitably revisit animation on this podcast, I would love to do more Hayao Miyazaki than the one we're doing in this. Um, subs versus dubs is a legitimate debate. I'm not saying, I, I don't fall one way or the other, like, oh, if you don't watch it with the original audio, you're fucked, you know? I, I think it's a totally a personal preference, but you can't deny that there is a difference between the two. Because oh, absolutely. the subtitling, and even, this happened, one of the first episodes on this entire podcast that Zach and I did was when we covered Fantastic Planet, which is a French animated movie. And I had that movie in original French audio with English subtitles. That's the only way I ever watched it. Zach, like, rented it or something, and he had the, um, you know, English dubs, and so he watched it that way. And there's a scene in that movie where the, 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 the drogs, the alien characters in that movie, they go through this basically, like, ritual, and in, in the English-language version, like the, the dubs, what Zach heard, he said they were going through dreaming. Like, there's a scene in that movie where they go, now we go into dreaming. But in the sub version that I had, they called it going into chimerical visions, like chimerical, C-H-I-M-E-R-I-C-A-L. And that was a big point where I was like, when I start, when we were discussing that episode, I was like, what the fuck are chimerical visions? And Zach is like, I have no goddamn clue what you're talking about, you know, because that just didn't show up. And then Zach bought Fantastic Planet on Blu-ray after we recorded that episode because he very rightly so loved that movie a lot. It's one of the best animated movies of all time. Um... And their tracks for both subs and dubs gave different renditions of that line. So nobody fucking has any idea. The only other thing we can do is I have to, like, find somebody who speaks fluent French or native French is what I'd want. Not like, you know, a French teacher or anything. I want to find, like, a, a native French person and say, what does this mean? But then it's how they translate it, right? It's crazy. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. <laughs> no, that that's uh, it. It is how how it's translated by whoever translated yes, it. Yes, presumably. So I mean, that might be the closest English we have to that. And then whenever they um, sub it, or I'm sorry, whenever they dub it, mm-hmm. they go with what is the English that people are going to understand who are native English speakers? Yes, yes. I mean, As a, so it's like, it's not, it's no longer the closest literal translation. It's like the closest subjective translation or something. Have you seen the meme? It's been around for a while and it hasn't come up in a little bit, but I, I always, I actually like it. It's one of the better memes in existence. Um, it's basically like a screenshot of an anime and it's, um, it's clearly subbed because you can see the subtitles at the bottom and the subtitles say, it like shows some character's face or something. And the subtitles say all according to Keikaku and then underneath in parentheses, it has a little asterisk and goes Keikaku means plan. (laughs) 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 And it's just like, that is that that's the issue that we're discussing right now is that it's all up to who's doing this subtitling or doing the interpretation, 
that's a very goofy example, of course. But like, yeah. that's the thing. If somebody, hurt, whatever French word it is, because I don't, I don't speak French, unfortunately. But whatever French word it is that somebody got dreaming from, somebody got chimerical visions from, and it's like, uh, like what? Like it's just so confusing, you know? <laughs> you know, as I said, I, I think it is like, you know. So one of the, one of the examples I think of whenever this comes up is is uh, in Naruto. If you watch the dubbed version. Uh, Naruto says believe it a lot and oh, it's actually really yeah annoying. yeah yeah um or at least I find it really annoying that's in like his dub- catchphrase in the Toonami version I remember back when I was in yes. high school you know but believe it you know that type of thing right in the subbed version what he actually says is undate bio okay uh and it basically as far as I could tell doesn't really mean much of anything it's just like it's just a thing he says um and Beyond that, I, I couldn't really find a good explanation of what it means, sure. and they just decided, like, we're going to have him say believe it all Because that just works for American audiences, you know, right. like you were saying. Yeah. No, no, I, I get it. I understand the choice. I mean, what would the other option be? I think just to go off of what you were saying about how you couldn't really find a good translation of it or, like, a good meaning of it, it might just be, like, some slang or something, colloquialism. Yeah. But, like, I get the... I get the uh, reasoning to be like, oh, let's make it believe it, and let's just say that is the subtitle because we can sell that in America. Where otherwise, what? Whenever Naruto says that, it's going to be in the subtitles in brackets, like Naruto's motto or something like that. You know, oh, uh, th- that's the thing I want to point out is in the subtitles, it, it actually they never actually say believe it. Oh, most okay. of the time they just leave that out. Oh, I never knew that. Okay, right on. Um, <laughs> like, the, yeah, it just doesn't appear in the subtitles. Uh, in brackets translator thinks this means believe it (laughs) uh at least you know it's been a while since i've watched it so i could be mistaken but i'm pretty sure like when i watch this on netflix in the subtitles like uh just doesn't show up with a with a translation and that and Um, once again that's a yet another different take on this notion of of subtitling of dubbing of all this stuff that's crazy Right. So, but yeah, I, I definitely knew some like purists back in the day were like, it's not real animated unless you're watching, you know, you know, unless you're reading it. And I'm just like, sometimes I'm doing homework, man. You know, let me listen. Yep. Yep. I, I think very importantly, uh, there are times which I have gotten flack from, from my friends in a very, you know, uh, fun way. You know, I'm thinking of you, Jeremy. Um, he loves his uh, subtitles. He loves his original Japanese audio. But even other people, there's some times where I want to watch the dub because you know I appreciate the animation so much. I don't want any time to be spent reading text. I want to be seeing what they're drawing, how they're drawing things, how they're animating these types of ideas. I mean, I I think uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, the um, Hayao Miyazaki movie that we won't be covering next week because that is a very childish movie. Um, I I, I always watch that with the dubs because, one, I think um, Kirsten Dunst, who voices Kiki, does a great job in that voice performance. But there is so much going on visually in that movie. Like, there's so many shots of, like, a bustling city, and you can tell how much care goes into those background animation shots and the movement of people and things like that. I don't want to miss that because I'm reading something like, you know, okay, see you tomorrow, you know, like, I'd rather hear it and watch yeah. it, then then read it and lose all that momentum type of thing. No, I totally agree with you. I think to that end, it's like I, I don't think you can objectively say that one way is better. But for people who are yes. who try to objectively say that that subbed is like it's more true to the you know to the way it was written, it's like yeah, but you're not seeing 
it true to the way it was animated. Exactly, exactly. I also think uh, I brought up Sylvain Chaumet before, who's someone I've, I've talked to you about before, Ben. Um, he's a, primarily an animator. He has one live-action movie and then some live-action shorts. But um, his two movies, his two animated movies, uh, Triplets to Belleville, um, the, the Triplets of Belleville, and um, uh, L'Illusionist, The Illusionist, those are animated films, but they are basically silent. Like, I think there's maybe, I don't know, 15 words in Le Triplice du Belleville, and um, they're right at the beginning at the end, and there's one part in the middle where a woman says, uh, no money, no hamburger, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you watch it with subtitles, and I think this is more of a problem with people who subtitle things, maybe I should take back that it's a problem because I think this is done more for the people who are hard of hearing. You're getting yeah. constantly, even though there's no dialogue, you're constantly getting car horn like honks yeah. you're constantly yeah. getting like dog barks you're constantly getting you know train noises uh shaking oh, you know whistling dude, that I, type I of love thing. it when they tell you what the music like what the music is supposed to make you feel like yes, suspense yes. melancholy sound yes <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's cool <laughs> i know, you know i know there's a video game this was this was big like a few years ago when it came out it's a it's a oh it's one of the life is strange games i'm pretty sure where they, if you turn the subtitles on, there's a scene where a character will like pick up something heavy and they'll grunt. They'll go, Ugh, you know, to lift it or whatever. And the subtitle says effort noise. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and people were like, well, like, come on, like, get the hell out of here. Like, stop it. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a, that's a reasonable interpretation of that sound. Um, and for someone who can't hear, that might mean something. Yes, yes. But but what I, what I'm saying is there's no. I think what we're both saying is there's there's no like subtitle difference between hard of hearing where you might want that or would want that, you know, versus mm. I just want the dialogue type of thing. A- absolutely, and I I do find that frustrating. I always I actually get a little bit personally insulted when I put in like a DVD. Yeah, I know I just aged myself. Um, <laughs> when I put in a DVD and I go into the settings before I even hit play, because that's how you used to have to do it. Yeah. Um, and it says English for, for those that are hard of hearing. Yep. And I'm just like, you fucking asshole. <laughs> like I'm not hard of hearing. I just don't want to miss any dialogue. Exactly. Because exactly. sometimes, you know, the audio mixing isn't good and now I am hard of hearing. So, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, me too. Yep, yep. Spent too many years at concerts. I don't know why I thought it was a good idea to put my head directly up to the speaker at so many concerts when I was younger. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that I became hard of hearing because Sam screamed at me one time. But, <laughs> one but time. At least you got, one time. I mean, she that got like good. in my good, ear and, and screamed as loud as she possibly could. And I had to, I, I like, pretty sure I punched her. Uh, that's okay. That's a, that's. What she did was fucked. Your response was uh, appropriate. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, did, I didn't hear, but I but I was very mad. Um, you punched her fake plants, uh, of course. <laughs> That's, yes, absolutely. Um, but okay, okay. I, oh my god. Okay, we have to just say I know we you and I have talked about this before, and I feel like people don't understand me sometimes because, like like you just said, it's it's not always hard of hearing. You just don't want to miss any dialogue because like, yes, audio mixing sometimes is not good. I, I'm one of the people who I fuck with my setup a lot. Like, if it's on my TV, if it's on my computer, I, like, do a lot of manual audio mixing to make sure it's okay. But sometimes it is just fucking stupid. Like, you know, sometimes you just have shit where it's like they're whispering the whole movie and then, like, a car will honk their horn and your TV will literally explode. Um, yeah. It happens. I don't get it, but it happens. <laughs> you, you get, like, the really loud, like, Hans Zimmer music and somebody's talking <laughs> in the background like this. 
this. Yes. It's like, why are you playing this music over them talking? Exactly. Am I not supposed to hear this? I, I, I agree with you. And I, I also very much like subtitles for that exact same reason. I mean, I've said on this podcast to you and to you before, Ben, whenever I watch something for the first time, I will usually watch it without subtitles because I want to see the cinematography. Yeah, I want to get yeah. the experience. But if I ever go back and watch it again... I want to make sure I got the full experience, so I'm going to turn subtitles on. You know, I, I'm like I'm probably the the uh, I'm I'm backwards to that. When I okay. watch it the first time, I'm definitely going to watch it with subtitles, uh, so I can make sure I get the full story. And then if I go back and rewatch it, I might pay less attention to those subtitles. Because then you know, I think either way, either direction that we just described, perfectly fine. I think those are both yeah, sure. valid reasons to use subtitles. Here's here's my thing though, and this is this is where I think people misunderstand me. I Honestly, do not think I've ever watched something with subtitles on and the subtitles have been 100% accurate. Never. I don't think not it's ever once. happened in my life, and that really bothers me. And here's the, here's the thing. This might—I don't know if this is, like, you know, not woke or woke or offensive or anything— this is the way I've always thought about it, because some people, sometimes it's minute, and when I have this conversation with people, sometimes they go, like, I go, oh, this character said, you know, I'm here to see the girl, and the subtitle will say, I'm here to see her, you know, which sure. is the same information. I understand that, and some people have said to me, oh, Rob, you're nitpicking, that type of thing. Here's what I say. If I was legitimately deaf and needed subtitles to enjoy movies in the same way that I do now— and somebody told me that they were paraphrasing in the subtitles, I would be livid. I would be I, fucking livid. I agree with you, like, 100%, but I've always chalked it up to uh, they're doing this to make the subtitles easier to read. For, like, screen real estate and, you know, flow yes. and stuff like I get that, but I honestly think that should be, that should not happen. That I, I, What I, you're saying is that's a cardinal sin punishable by death? I, I 100% think so. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that, but I, and you know, like I said, my reason is is really rationalization, but I've, I've that's what I've always like I've always assumed that they were doing it for readability. That that's what I think as well because it is in that example I just gave it is the same information, but, right? It's fewer words, fewer syllables. But whatever. I mean, I I honestly still think I would be I'm angry and I I can hear like Ben and I both said we can't hear well anymore but we still can hear and we know there's a difference and my big thing is it's like what the like I I understand what you said that's probably what it is but I've chalked it up in my own angry rationalistic way of I'm going whoever's making these fucking subtitles are lazy and they shouldn't be lazy because this uh, matters they should be accurate I thought you were going to say that that you think they're uh like Taking the piss or having a laugh at deaf people. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, that would actually make – then I would be more, even more livid. Oh, yeah, of course. I and, just um, – um, That's what we should start protesting about, Ben. Fucking subtitles. Jesus. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, whenever they have subtitles that don't match, we're – every time – like every time we see a movie that exists where the subtitles don't yes, match, yes. we riot. And there, there are also – like the example I use is the one that I think is most common, but I think you and I have both experienced – there's instances where the subtitles are wrong. Oh, yeah, drastically. And and you um, and not only are they leaving out words. I mean, I've seen fucking subtitles where they miss a sentence or some shit like that. Oh, you know? sure. Yeah. But 100%. I've I've seen my favorite example in all of of human history, at least the one that I've found, is there's an episode of Fringe. I think it's very early on in Fringe. 
um, the, the TV show, if anyone's not familiar, where, of course, the main character, Olivia, is an FBI agent. Um, there's a scene at the start of an episode where her sister is living with her, or staying with her, that type of thing. Sister has a daughter. So it's basically like, you know, mom, daughter, and aunt, that type of thing. It, it's the cold open of the episode. Well, not the cold open. It's like the, the first human element, because the cold open's always the, the crime or whatever that they have to solve. But there is literally a point where, like, the Olivia and the sister are talking, you know, two grown women are talking, they're saying whatever, who gives a fuck, you know, and then the little girl runs in, the daughter runs in, and the the mom says, like, did you brush your teeth? And she's like, yeah, I did, and the mom is like, well, let me see, like, let me smell your breath, let me make sure you ch- brush your teeth, whatever the fuck you do with kids, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and, She's like, oh, and, you know, she's like, you didn't brush your teeth, or you didn't brush them with toothpaste. She's like, do I have to use toothpaste? Like, it's a very basic scene, you know? And then, you know, the little girl, she's like, go brush your teeth. The little girl runs out of the room. And the actual line of dialogue, the sister, in this, like, exasperated tone, rolls her eyes and says to Olivia, the FBI agent, she's like, if if she won't brush her teeth, can you arrest her? It's a joke, (laughs) you know? That's the joke in that start of that episode. The subtitles... This was on Netflix years ago. I can't say for certain if it's still the same way. I don't even know if Fringe is even on Netflix anymore. But the subtitle said, If she won't brush her teeth, will you shoot her? (laughs) (laughs) I was watching this. I was watching this maybe in like 2011 with my girlfriend at the time. We were working through all of Fringe. We had to pause it. We had to show all my roommates. We had to laugh our asses off for like 40 fucking minutes. But... I mean, that's a very funny story, and I think it's very... Uh, clearly, that was like an all-according-to-Keikaku moment where the interpreter was having a laugh or trolling us or something. But I'd be fucking livid! If I actually needed to rely on that subtitle, I would be fucking furious that they did it that incorrectly. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think... I don't think I can disagree. It, it's... <laughs> it, the misrepresentation of information, or, if you will, misinformation, that's like a, a big problem, right? Like exactly. the government just made a a ministry about it like we're fucking harry potter and um (laughs) and this is the misinformation that they should be fucking going after is these goddamn subtitles in movies where they're telling me like that dogs are barking and there's no fucking dogs right right like that's that's some shit like i see it a lot where they'll be like uh like especially in horror movies they're like little girl laughing and i'm like i didn't fucking hear anything exactly also on that point another thing we haven't talked about with subtitles when they're mistimed. Yeah. Oh, God, oh my yeah. God. And I know that that does come down. I mean, VLC is a great media player, which you can actually separate when, when it's possible, if it's not hard-coded, separate, right, you know, yeah, subtitles from... Are... Yeah, exactly. And, and you can handle that. But on, you can't fucking do that on Netflix. Dude, you know what? You know, I watch stupid cooking reality shows. I'm a sucker for the horrible television shows of Gordon Ramsay. Do you know how fucking stupid it is when you watch a Gordon Ramsay cooking show and at the end of the show they're eliminating somebody and in the actual show he goes, my decision is to eliminate, you know, and then like 10 seconds of pause oh. and while dramatic music plays, but the subtitles just put the name up? Like, so what that, the fuck? That happens with stand-up <laughs> comedy also. It's like whenever there's timing for a punchline and, and then the subtitle is just like, I'm actually just going to ruin this joke for you. Right? right? Oh my god. Hey kids, while we were recording this episode, 
the Puppet Master kind of came in and messed some things up. And what I mean by that is that it turned out uh, that we lost some audio. There were some dropouts and stuff like that, and it really just wasn't usable. So I'm putting in this notice to let everybody know that there's going to be a big chunk. It's actually about 35-40 minutes, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately, if you don't want to listen to a very incredibly long episode... But Ben and I basically finish up our complaining about subtitles and then start talking about the themes of this movie, what is life, what defines life, and uh, I think, you know, everything kind of picks up from there, and so uh, blame the puppet master. How do we feel about the definition of something is alive if it acts of its own accord? I, I'm with you, but it's like, isn't free will, the notion of free will, let me go back to that Roomba example. For someone that doesn't have the knowledge, if they see the Roomba go back to its charging station and stop vacuuming when its battery light starts to blink, if they don't know that that is a, like, something created by a human, doesn't that come across as free will? Like, how, how do you um, define free will? Like, free will seems to be a, a notion of perspective or perception by somebody who has the knowledge of free will, right? Uh, free will is a... Free will is a tough question uh, because, yes. you know, it's it's debatable whether humans even have free will. And I, I think, you know, we, we don't need to get into it too much, but there's the idea of hard determinism, which is that everything that happens happens because of some prior cause. Sure. And that, you know, what I'm saying in this podcast can be linked all the way back to the Big Bang through cause, uh, cause and effect relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If that were the case then it would then it could not be the case that i have free will because all of my actions would have been given sufficient processing power which nothing that we know of has sure all of my actions could be have been deduced beforehand by something that had all the all the relevant information so i I guess i guess that's a definition of free will we we could rely on which is essentially can you deduce the actions that something will take based on based on information like based on like can you gather enough information to deduce the actions that something will take uh, i mean that's that's a bad definition probably no but. no but I, I think you're getting at the a good point the, the the real point there is can you collect enough information it's something we've talked about before with um well one i think um you know newtonian physics newtonian mechanics the idea of that like every dice roll is determinable if you have every single piece of information about the forces that go into it but at the same time i think it comes back to something we talked about with blame i know you and i ben we've had the conversation where um if something goes wrong somebody else might say oh this is your fault because you did this action that directly caused it and the person who's getting the blame on that first level goes well no i wouldn't have done that if this person didn't do that thing and it's like that sure. chain could be followed, like you said, all the way back to the Big Bang. And it's like, then uh, what is blame? Well, I, yeah, I think there's an episode of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where they explore that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's where, right. Where, yeah. like, they're they're late to something and, and they or they lose a lottery ticket or something and they end up blaming D for dropping a I, penny at the subway. Yes, yes. I think I'm thinking about the, the lottery ticket one I didn't I wasn't remembering. But also um, there's the one where they like. They have to go to court because they fucked up a baseball game or something, and the whole court okay. proceeding is them like blaming each other or something like oh, that. I mean, sure. that might be the them blaming each other to the end of time or to the beginning of time might be the thesis of "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, but, the, the, but uh, the refusal I- to take responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the idea: is that you know, is that deterministic or not? And and that's why free will is so tough. Like you were positing just, just a few moments ago. And, um, I mean, that's something that I, 
I know people like to say that a lot. Like the concept of free will is what I've heard from other people I had this conversation with is like the defining factor of life. But why are you taking something that I'm bringing up? I want to know what's the definition of life because it's so hard to nail down. Why are you coming back at me with something that is as equally hard to nail down? I don't know that free will is as hard to nail down so much as – well, okay, it depends on what you mean by hard to nail down. It's hard to nail down in the sense that we can't probably ever have enough information to know what is a lie. I think that's what I'm getting at, yeah. Okay, yeah. so so you're saying it's, it's like not a useful definition. Exactly. It's too complex can never for us to sure. – to, to, yeah. You know, it's a bad right. we'll dictionary never know. Def- definition is what I'm getting at. We'll never basically. know if our if our dog has free will, so we can never know if it's – sentient is probably actually the, the thing we're talking about here more than life. Yes. Because yes. life – um, I think is biologically defined as uh, like cellular reproduction and things like that. So like, you, you know, plants are alive. Sure. Um, sure. But a, a plant's uh, so, not going to choose anything, of course. Right. You know? So yeah. yeah, we're really talking about, about sentient. I'm actually glad you bring up plants. Cause that gets back at what we were saying about the imperative of life forms. I think plants are the definite or the not definite, but textbook example of their imperative is to survive and procreate type of thing. That, that's, that's um, maybe not even an imperative because that's what they do naturally without any intervention. Right. There, there's no, there's no notion of, well, there's no notion of choice for one, yeah, which is where yeah. free will comes in. Uh, that's what the imperative is like. If, if and I, and I guess now that you've, we've, you've brought it back to imperative, um, the opposite of imperative is the ability to choose. Sure. Or, okay. Or the negation okay. of imperative is the ability to choose. So, so yeah. if we're gonna say that things that are acting solely through imperative are not sentient, which I think, cause I think we've been using the wrong term. I think sentient is what we mean more than alive. Um, that if we're going to say that, that that makes something non sentient, you know, logically it's not equivalent to saying that something that can act without imperative is sentient. Well, that brings me to a, another, another big thing I think this movie gets at. And I, if I have not already, I'll put the clip in of the entire Puppet Master's monologue in the middle of this movie. Not when the Puppet Master is doing the whole, like, let's merge together Kusanagi thing at the end of the movie, but when the Puppet Master, like, first reveals itself to the audience, to the characters. All external controls are turned off. The body's using its own power source. I entered this body because I was unable to overcome Section 6's reactive barriers. However, what you are now witnessing is an act of my own free will. As a sentient life form, I hereby demand political asylum. Is this a joke? Ridiculous! It's programmed for self-preservation! It can also be argued that DNA is nothing more than a program designed to preserve itself. Life has become more complex in the overwhelming sea of information. And life, when organized into species, relies upon genes to be its memory system. So man is an individual only because of his intangible memory. And memory cannot be defined, but it defines mankind. The advent of computers and the subsequent accumulation of incalculable data has given rise to a new system of memory and thought parallel to your own. Humanity has underestimated the consequences of computerization. Nonsense! This babble offers no proof at all that you're a living, thinking life form. And can you offer me proof of your existence? How can you, when neither modern science nor philosophy can explain what life is? Who the hell is this? Even if you do have a ghost, we don't offer freedom to criminals. 
It's the wrong place and time to defect. Time has been on my side, but by acquiring a body, I am now subject to the possibility of dying. Fortunately, there is no death sentence in this country. What is it? Artificial intelligence? Incorrect. I am not an AI. My code name is Project 2501. I am a living, thinking entity who was created in the sea of information. They get at something, and I'm trying to use my words very carefully because it's a it's a female body. Well, cyber cyborg female body. It's a male projecting voice. It's a computer program that is talking about its own sentience, that type of thing. But when you say choice, do you think we should make the distinction for a defining factor of life or sentience, whichever word we want to uh, land on? Because you're right, we probably were using the wrong word. Is sentience defined not only by choice, but informed choice? Because there's a part, and like I said, I didn't write the quote down, I'll put the clip in. The Puppet Master's monologue made me think and made me write the note down, is memory a valid or very important defining characteristic of sentience? Because choices can be made. An if-then statement can exist in a Roomba, like we've been talking about. If battery less than X, go to charging station. If battery greater than equal to X, go to vacuum shit, you know? But Mm -hmm. they don't, because they don't have memory. But... I, I guess what I'm saying, my question is posed to you. I'm glad you brought up choice because that's important. But is it even further? Is it informed choice that I, defines life? I, well, so I guess the thing I want to point out with your example is that it's not the Roomba making the choice. It's the, sure. the person who programmed yes, the Roomba yes. making the choice. Yes. Um, it's the automation, so the, the code it, that's making the choice. If what you mean by informed choice is that the thing making the choice is also the thing impacted by the choice. Um, it informed in that sense. Mm, I, I think so. I think so. It has to be that. That's probably necessary, but I don't know if it's sufficient. Okay. Because I, I think the puppet master in this movie, I mean, very importantly, I don't think we even mentioned it. Um, if we did, it was a while ago. The puppet master asked for political asylum in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. The, so the puppet master is very well aware. I, I think that's maybe what I'm saying is why I think it's informed choice. Because it clearly understands, this concept of the puppet master clearly understands that there are rules put in place by organisms other than itself or entities other than sure. itself that it needs to adhere to for survival. Well, I, and, you know, I, I have to... Since we're getting in such a philosophical discussion, I have to push back with counterexamples as sure, is sure. the way of things. Um, you know, when you when you talk about in, uh, memory being involved, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what happens when someone gains gets amnesia? Uh, I said gains because Ooh. I play magic too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's, that's, that's what you um, gained amnesia. That would be great. <laughs> Imagine if, like, you know, one day I wake up in the hospital and the doctors are like, oh my god. Who are you? What are you? You gained amnesia. And I'm like, I don't think that's a benefit, you know? <laughs> I'd yeah, like I to mean, have gained the power of flight, not amnesia. <laughs> I mean, but, but who cares what you think? Because you don't remember anything. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, because you're your not opinion alive. This, your opinion on this is invalid. Um, no, I, I just mean, like, I, I feel like everything we can come up with, we can come up with a state where a human could be absent of the faculty in question. 
and we would still hesitate to call them not sentient sure. or not alive. Absolutely, you're right. And, and doesn't that get back to what we were saying about it being circumstantial? You know, it, it is. Doesn't that add to the fact that of what I was saying? Is there a static definition of life, or does it have to be based on some not previous knowledge, some or current uh, knowledge context. of the situation? Context is is what I'm looking for. Thank you. Yeah, I would love for the answer to be that there is a static definition of life, I, that I, life is something that we could write down on paper and be like, be like this topological space is alive because functions separate yeah, be, points. Because or of course my brain has, you know, uh, two non-intersecting open sets in it, whatever. I would love to have that yeah, definition, yeah. you know, but, but uh, the more we talk about this, the more that we, you and I talk about in this discussion, the more that I've made my jokes on Knights of Vader, the Star Wars podcast, even back last year when Zach and I did AI artificial intelligence, which got more at the idea of, you know, can a, can a machine love, like what is love? I'm kind of running into the wall every single time we have this discussion. I have it with anybody that it's like, no, maybe that's why life is so hard to life in air quotes, like, or just to quote it is so hard to define because it's so contextual. It's so circumstantial. I I think that I'm going to have to go the Supreme Court route and, and you know, say that life is a lot like child porn. Mm. I can't define it, but I know it when I feel it. I, <laughs> as, I, I, as opposed I, to I know it when I see it. I'm with, I'm with you there. That, that is actually um, – that's a very – very dark joke, but you're right in making it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that I'm right in making a child porn joke. Child porn and adult animation, everybody. Welcome to Cinemodities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think I think at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, is that any definition that we could give wouldn't be useful. Um, I'm with you there. And, I think that's and, the big thing. Absolutely. And I know that that might kind of feel like a cop-out or whatever, but I mean, I th- I think that's actually the answer. It's only it's only a, it might feel like a cop out, but anybody who wants to email us cinemodelsgmail.com or anything like that, like if you want to tell us it's a cop out, you better fucking show up to bat with a goddamn good definition, a good static definition. And oh, here's yeah. what Ben and I are saying: you can't. You know, please, we right. welcome you if you think you have one. We will gladly debate you because I think. If this episode has shown nothing to the cinema audience, is that we love to discuss these types of ideas, these philosophical notions. But if you think we're wrong, you better be ready to throw down, right? One hundred percent, I agree. One hundred percent. And and that is, you know, I like like he said, come come in come in with an example, um, but but be aware that that uh, what I'm gonna do likely is give you a counterexample. Exactly. To why I think it's wrong. Exactly. And um, and and this is a thing, you know, I, I think um, it can be a frustrating experience for people that aren't used to it. But but Rob knows from our time with the maths that um, counterexamples are the way. Oh, my God. You, I you, mean, they like, might be my favorite thing of all time, you know? <laughs> like, you know, if you're asserting something's true and I give you a counterexample, it's because what you said isn't isn't true exactly. generally. Exactly. Uh, um, you know, you need additional caveats. Yes, or that's a great word. I'm glad. Use the math word, too. It's not true in general. It might be true, you know, on a set of measure one, but that set of measure zero is just equally important. Absolutely. Right. Um, I there's other quotes. I, I want to continue this because there's other things, notions and directions. We I don't think we've hit with this yet. Um, there's two more that I have um, written down. Um, let's go to this one next because I think it actually lends itself well to what we've been saying already. Uh, Batu 
I think Batu says this. I actually am realizing I didn't quote this, but a character in Ghost in the Shell says, quote, if a cybernetic brain can create its own ghost, what's the point of being human? And I, I do think this is meaningful because wh- whoever, whatever character said it, I'm sorry if I'm, you know, if it wasn't Batu, if it was Kusanagi, whatever, that type of thing. Um, I do like the idea of humans, organic beings, saying something like, well, if machines can do what we do, what is the point of us doing that as well? I think this is also the point of iRobot, you know, not only the um, Alex Proyas, Will Smith movie, iRobot, but the actual book from Asimov, iRobot, where the... Um, the four laws of robotics come from and things like that. I um, think this has been gotten at uh, by a lot of different TV shows. I think Fringe that I mentioned earlier, which has a lot of technological advancements causing problems, they get at this notion as well. But I wanted to pick your brain on that, Ben, is that, um, you know, I, I think not only is this quote just itself meaningful, if a, if a cybernetic brain can create its own ghost, What's the point of being human? But I think it also adds to the fact that a question that, you know, we don't really talk about as a society anymore, but something that I'm sure came around, like, aren't computers better than us? Aren't calculators better than us? Aren't the tools that we've created to benefit us, haven't they become better than us? That's something I've heard in the past, and I wanted to just pick your brain on that. That's such a narrow... Okay, anyway, let's start. Oh, no, no, I, I, I do agree with you that it's narrow, but, I mean, just in the barest of bones, like, a calculator can do calculations better than a human nearly 100% of the time, right? Without, yeah, but it has to be told what to do. Exactly. I knew you were going to bring that up. But please, please re- respond to that many questions I just threw you. Okay. Um, so if, if uh, well, let me ask you this. If a computer can create something that looks like a ghost, but that ghost can't haunt you after it dies, mm. and a human ghost could, like, would you accept that, that that that's enough of a difference to like want to be human? Like, do you want to haunt people after you die? I mean, from what I know about ghosts, and also this, I'm about what I'm about to say is a joke, Ben. But um, for the cinema audience and Ben, I don't believe ghosts exist as like the remnants of dead humans. Um, if anything. This is one of the weird beliefs I hold. I think ghosts, as we know them or we see them on YouTube videos, whatever the fuck that means, that's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down. Um, they are creatures from different dimensions that live on different frequencies than we do. Like I said, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but what you're saying is that the concept of a ghost, of a human, is that there is some notion of life or essence of life that carries on after death, right? Yeah. That's, that's I, the idea. I fundamentally don't believe in that. Yeah, that's fine. I, I don't. I can't say that I do either. I'm not uh, a Looney Tune. Here, <laughs> <laughs> Ben. Here, here. I was thinking you were Bugs Bunny all these days. Oh fuck! I fucked that joke up. Okay, let me let me do a double take. Ben, here. I thought you are being LeBron James all this time. <laughs> um, no, the other thing I actually want to mention about ghosts because this has come up a lot with my friends in the last few weeks because we like to watch. Um, if anybody is familiar with it, um, Nuke's Top Five, like Nuke N U K E, Nuke's Top Five is a YouTube channel. He does a lot of like goofy ghost videos, like reviewing like paranormal shit caught on YouTube and TikTok, you know. And we like to watch it because we like to laugh at it because it's the fucking dumbest shit in existence. And one of the things that I've really been starting to think about in regard to those videos is that all these stories about ghosts, about like like modern tales of like, you know, my house is haunted and stuff like that, apparently 
these souls, these these ghosts that live on past the real world, these things that have reached ethereal form, the most like the strongest and most impactful thing they can do is like move a chair. R- yeah. Right? Like what the fuck is that? Like isn't that stupid? Like, if ghosts actually existed, dude, I'm thinking, like, Beetlejuice. Like, Beetlejuice is going to haunt my family for years and cause us to die or some shit like that, you know? But it's like, you get all these YouTube videos where it's like, oh, my God, look at this creepy video. They shook a plate. Nobody Um, was touching the plate, but they shook a plate. And I'm like, this is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. And I mean, I have a ghost or my cat keeps opening the cabinet under my kitchen. Right? To prescribe, Uh. to prescribe... Shaking a chair as something so scary to the afterlife of a human soul, I find offensive. <laughs> the uh, human soul is so strong; it should it should be stronger than that. And that's very that's a, that's a huge tangent. I don't know if we want to go off on that, but that's no. I've been feeling that for a while. Where I'm like, all these stupid fucking YouTube videos are basically saying like, okay, yeah, you can die, you can have unfinished business in the real world, but what what's the extent of your powers? I don't know. You can knock over a cup. Go fuck <laughs> yourself, okay? There's that's another I mean, reason I don't that's like the reason you know, that religion. Being alive is better. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you're dead, you can't do dick. You know? God, it's fucking stupid to me. Fucking stupid. Okay, sorry, sorry to go off on that. I had to mention that because Ben and I had not talked about that previously, and it's been a big thing where I've been yelling at people, going like, you know, I would rather go to hell than have the chance to knock over a plate, right? <laughs> like, I'd be bored as shit. With a plate, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, I, okay. If hell is constant suffering, then I think I'll choose boredom, which is also constant suffering, but not the pain kind. Um, anyway. God, what? how did this even start? <laughs> you, okay, you, you, okay, yeah, the question, um, if, if, a, if a robot can make its own soul, what's the point of being human? Yes, yes. Uh, what's the point of being human anyway? Um, Ooh. Good question, and part of this movie's themes, Kusanagi's whole thing, you know? What's the point of being human because I'm better as a cyborg? Um, um, I, I'm, so, I'm existing as a cyborg. Maybe not better. Better is a little too strong for what she feels. Are the things that we've created better than us? Absolutely fucking not. And I'll tell you why. They can't solve problems. They can only do calculations. They can't think dynamically. They, I think... I think I, dynamic thing okay so this is something this is where i think my my big crux to bring up to you ben on the star wars podcast always lies is that um if you want to ask the question if you want to really talk about the question of you know is ai superior inferior i I mean maybe to to put it in a in a very boiler boiled down form like should robots have rights you know let's talk about the whole like like this robot puppet master is asking for political asylum i am very steadfast and have been for a very long time and have been very vocal about it on the star wars podcast anything we create is immediately inferior to us machinery wise okay don't get me wrong if you have a kid yes you created that kid that kid is not inferior well i mean some parents do think that um but we're talking about machines for at least a little while Oh, for a little? I mean, maybe for like, you know, 18 years. Um, Legally yeah. <laughs> but I, I am very, very much of the standpoint that um, one of my favorite examples is when Zach had me on years ago to talk about Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, Rise of Skywalker, whatever the fuck that movie was called, you know. Um, and there's a scene in that movie where C-3PO can't decipher 
like Sith text or something like that. Like there's a literal scene in that movie where they have to go and take C-3PO to a hacker because he is programmed to not be able to read Sith text. And I'm like, that's what's up. I'm like, that's cool. He was programmed to not do this, so you have to reprogram him. I'm like, that's how we should treat robots. But at the same time in that movie, the char- there's another little robot character whose name I don't remember. When Zach listens to this, he's going to be pissed at me because, of course, he knows everything Star Wars related. And there's a scene in that movie where a character tells that little robot character to go do something, and the little robot character just kind of doesn't do it. And you know what my response is? You pick up that fucking droid, you smash it against the wall, and you restart it because it's your property. You own it. If a fucking robot ever disobeys you, you have absolutely every right in existence to abuse that shit out of this world. I do not (laughs) think robots have any stake in any way, shape, or form. We should be allowed... This also goes back to AI. I don't know if Ben has seen AI, artificial intelligence. There's a whole scene in that movie about the flesh fair where humans gather like a NASCAR race and they watch people blow up robots. And I see that in that movie and I go, hell yeah, dude, I'd own a franchise. I would fucking do that for fun for my friends for free. Robots have no stake whatsoever, no matter how good they look, no matter how human they act. If there are created machines, they are our property through and through. I have a very strong opinion on this. I don't think, Ben, I've ever gotten your opinion on this. So, please, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I think that your reaction of throw it against the wall and restart it. Uh, oh, and so, okay, first I just have to disagree with you about you saying that a robot disobeyed you. Because it didn't disobey you. It just had an error. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you, you are absolutely like, right. No, 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 no. You are, you are, that is 100%. I'm so glad you bring that up because I've done it before with things I've not thrown against the wall because I need them. When my fucking computer acts up, you know, right. what I'm happened being, earlier in this goddamn episode, I'm being, I didn't pick up my being. fucking laptop and whip it against the wall and go like, fuck, Ben, we're screwed. The stupid robot disobeyed me, you know? You're right. You're right. You're so right. You, you can say it disobeyed you if you, if you want to anthropomorph- anthropomorphize it even further than when we say it died. That's a good point um, that I'm guilty of that as well. Good point. <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't trying to shame you or anything, but I, I'm just saying uh, I don't think of it as like when, when my tablet fails to connect to the internet, I don't think that my Wi-Fi router or my tablet are disobeying me. I think that something's wrong with my <laughs> technological setup. Okay, you're right there. I do want to clarify that in the context of the Star Wars movies, the droids are basically alive, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah, why that's... I use disobeyed. In real no, life, I, I... I'm with you. Like if Because it's happened. It's happened to both of us. Our fucking, like, we, we hit, like, you know, I'll go on my phone. I'll be like, oh, I want to listen to the new Cinematics episode. Let me hit Spotify. And my phone will just fucking freeze up. I don't throw my phone against the wall and go, you fucking disobeyed me. I'm with you there. Okay. Okay, thank you. Now, <laughs> I okay, should. I should start doing that. <laughs> now, now that we've said it, I'm. Whenever my Fire Stick is just like not opening Netflix, I'm just gonna be like, "Stop disobeying me!" <laughs> <laughs> like I, I am your you master. <laughs> you, you do what I tell you. I mean, that's like there's like a level of ego there that I just could don't. You, could uh, you imagine if you went over? Like, let's say I went over to somebody's house and <laughs> I just pop into their apartment. You know, the type of thing. I walk into the living room, and in the corner of their room. I see their tablet, like, screen side against the wall, and I'm like, what's up that? They're in timeout. <laughs> it's, it's grounded. <laughs> it's grounded. <laughs> it gets no charge for three days. 
that there is a fantastic <laughs> sketch in there somewhere, like sketch comedy skit in there. That oh, is yeah. really good. God, there's um, also with how much we're laughing about it, that could be like a new Black Mirror episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> he disobeyed me. It's like you you see like somebody's at work talking like and you think they're talking about their kid and then you find out that they're like talking about their, their vacuuming robot or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like that would be how the episode would start. And then, like, so at first you're like, man, this person's crazy. And then you find out, like, the other people they were talking because, about okay, you're knew right. that he was talking about his robot. That's good. They'd have to be calling it Roombert or something like that. Like, Robert, but Roombert, Roomba and Robert. Like, Roombert. Oh, Roombert, you know, fucking. I've, I've scolded him so many times now. And he keeps running over the dog shit, you know? <laughs> right. He just keeps spreading dog shit all over my, all over my living room. That's really funny. Whatever. That's okay. Um, that, that, is the, that is the next evolution of um, my hatred for colloquialism <laughs> colloquially telling or attributing life actions to robots that's the next step <laughs> it disobeyed me um it's that's... in timeout. could you imagine putting a dunce cap on like a tablet <laughs> <laughs> so all right so yeah i guess what i what i was getting at though is like, you know let's say c-3po um you're like go get me a glass of water and he's like no my first thought is somebody has hacked my robot Oh sure, sure, okay, okay. Like I don't, I don't think like my robot's developing since. I would literally I think, like... pull a put a bullet into that thing. <laughs> <laughs> like I no, I, I would just be like my robot's been compromised. Yes, yes. Like I and don't. That is the actual response because that's what happens. Also, you know, um, in the modern era of online banking or online, you know, p- anything with passwords. You know, if if you do something and you know you get an email that says like you know oh you're this uh, this order has been placed or something like that. You don't think like oh the program fucked up. You think that you know something's been compromised. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um. And so I, I definitely, you know, I, I'm I'm with you. I guess in saying that I don't think robots have rights. Um. I I also love to make the joke that my dog doesn't have any rights. <laughs> like which I, I which no, I, I also kind of do agree with you. I mean, I'm not so, saying you should like start to abuse your dog or anything. I think we're all on the same page there. Me, Ben, and the cinema audience. But it's like. You're, but your dog's never going to be like, you know, you're going to be like, time for a walk, and it's going to go, no. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, that's so, not going to happen. <laughs> so like, you know, we'll, we'll be going to our friends to play magic or whatever, and we're like, all right, here's here's the story. We're going to leave. You're not. You're staying here uh, because you don't have any rights. And Your, your you know, dog's we, also never going to, like, combat you or, or argue with you about what to watch on Netflix tonight, you know? You know? You're never going to have to have that confrontation with your dog. pretty particular. She, uh, she really likes to watch Among Us on YouTube, isn't, actually. Isn't your dog blind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> ben, it has even less rights. <laughs> ben, because – you know why it has less rights? Because it doesn't understand the things that we understand in, in you know, in terms of uh, – I'm realizing it, I've dug myself it, a hole. I was trying will, to make what, a, what I, you're trying to tell me is that it will, it will never know that the subtitles are wrong because it can't yes, see them. Is you're that you're right. I was about to I was about to make a subtitle joke and I caught myself halfway through and I was like, went, nope, that's deaf people, not blind people. <laughs> no, no, it's totally it's blind people too. You know, it's like everybody. You're watching, it, you're watching it. You're like, shit. You know, the audio doesn't match the subtitles. They really fucked this up. <laughs> right. Okay. Perfect. So. Here, here's the other thing to, to add on to this, because I think, you know, us saying like animals, robots, I think droids in Star Wars, um, 
C-3PO especially being so humanoid, even with modern technology, like with Roombas and, and even other things, um, there's a line, the other line in this movie that I wanted to um, uh, talk about on this topic is that I'm pretty sure Batu says, quote, even a doll can seem to have a soul. And this is something you and I have talked about where the human brain is so ready to fill in the gaps that two dots and a line constitute a human face. Yeah. Right. When that could not be further from the truth. Do you think that there, as we get more and more into technology, of course, technology in the modern era, like not 1995, not like cyborgs or anything, well, that, but also more of what we're dealing with, like people can buy, a, like, a, like I'm sure like in, you know, two years – if they don't already, Roombas will have googly eyes on them that aren't put there by the people. They'll be put there by the consumer. I mean, you have those, um, like, droids, not droids, robots that clean up spills in grocery stores that have, like, a little smiley face on their LED screen, you know? I mean, isn't it kind of weird that we, as a society, as a species, have used all these terms about life forms for machines, and that has kind of guided creators and consumers to accept these machines having faces um well i mean the fact that language dictates uh thought processes is like pretty widely understood very much i mean if you look Um, at gendered languages um i i think it's in german bridges are masculine whereas in french they're feminine and when you ask mm -hmm. people to describe like ideal bridges in german they use words like strong um you know and in french they use words like sleek Sure, sure. I think you're getting at the um the the Sapir Whorf hypothesis is uh, which says that you know the language you learn from birth directly in influences your way of thinking. You know, right? Uh, and you know, so essentially, in, in this case, it's like it's uh, our birth of the understanding of technology. The language we learned is humanized. Yes, um, very much so. Very much so. And so, you know, is it is it weird that we've begun to accept those things or whatever? Uh, no, it's it's I it's 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 weird in a vacuum, but it's not weird with context. You're right. It is weird in a vacuum. Whenever I pose this question, you know, just at a you know in this point in the conversation, I can go, sure, isn't it fucking crazy that we do this stupid shit, you know, and say our laptop died? But I think it goes back to um, you know, not exactly the same, but to reference what I was talking about, the California roll. We were eased into it. Our society and our language was eased into these things. Yeah. And it's just become the norm at this point. Absolutely. I don't really like it. I mean, I, I think we might have mentioned this once. This was a few years ago that I was reading about this. But there's a there's a big copyright case that's going on between an Asian company and an American company. And they're basically arguing over – they don't even make the same machines. I, I haven't looked it into, so, into such a long time that I have to pull up the articles and stuff and the actual legal documents I read. But basically they were suing each other over copyright infringement on the face they used on their machines. Yeah. And yeah. the question was – can you copyright two dots in a line? That's what it came down to for me because, you know, it wasn't even saying like, oh, one company had more expressive eyes or one company had teeth on their face. It was it was the notion of one company sued the other and there was a countersuit and that type of thing of just going like nothing in the court case, nothing in the legal battle had anything to do with their software, their coding, their actual hardware. It was all just like if a customer sees this item on the shelf, 
they're going to recognize the face first. And does that cause market confusion, which is a big part of copyright cases, with our brand because we have a similar face on our product? And I was like, this is the fucking most Black Mirror shit I've ever read in my life, you know? (laughs) That's funny because I was thinking like boring dystopia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, later seasons of Black Mirror have become boring dystopia, so you're not wrong there, Ben. Um, (laughs) um, But I I find that so fascinating. I find that whole thing with, um, you know, the way that we just attribute, once again, not through language now, but through visuals that we see. The line I mentioned, even a doll can seem like it has a soul because we see those eyes. We see that face. For some reason, we've been, you know, we've evolved or been bred or, or just exist through all of time to view things that look human as human. And now we're even at the point that things that don't look human but act human, like a Roomba, we think of as human. And it's, it's, just, it's just the craziest thing to me. I love thinking about it. There's a, I think it's like the first episode of the show Community. The Joel McHale, the whatever his character's mm-hmm. name is, he says something about like uh, what makes us human, what brings us all together is I can show you this pencil and tell you its name is Fred and then break it and your, and your heart dies a little bit. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, the connection that we feel to inanimate objects. I mean, I was about to say things that are not human. I think animals are a different case. Animals clearly are very much alive and are expressive. I think that's a, a very different area. But the way that, you know, I mean, like, I got I got stuffed animals that are clearly not alive. They don't even look like humans. I have a stuffed cactuar from Final Fantasy. Jesus Christ, I would be more upset if that got stolen in a robbery than if, like, my TV got stolen. Because okay. I think that <laughs> thing is, like, with me. It's connected to me. I, I, I put a lot of meaning on it. The way that we do that so easily as humans is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually, um, I think, a widely studied psychological phenomenon as well, is that objects are not objects. Objects are, are our history with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the projection of us onto them to a, a good extent, for sure. Right. So, like, when it comes down to, uh, and again, this is like in a vacuum, you go into somebody's house, you're like, you could probably throw away all this shit and it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but to them, like, those things mean something. And th- so then the question is, like, is this object actually just a, I don't know, a candle? Or is yeah. this object the memory of your grandmother? It's like fucking, uh, who knows? I think, um, I think what you just said gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Is memory a very important defining choice of life? Because I think what you just described with the grandmother thing is very much based in memory. Or also, to phrase it differently from what we're talking about, is the ability to project meaning onto things another very important quality of life or definition? De- you know what I mean? Uh, defining uh, characteristic of life. I, I, I don't think that it's defining. I think that it is something that, that life that could be possible with something that we would describe as sentient. But I also think like Spock. Sure. Uh, or or the, the Vulcans. Like they probably don't project meaning onto things. Sure, sure. It's okay. I'm with you. It's not defining, but it is a. Um, it's it's a symptom of life. I really want to uh, use it, that term. Yeah, <laughs> it might be not necessary but sufficient. Actually, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's the better way to put it, which I was going to say. But I like I actually like the phrase. It's a symptom of life. <laughs> sure. But you're right. I mean, the, the, like uh, I think that's what we were saying before, though. That like all of this stuff that we're saying, there's no good answer. You know, it's just all different angles to approach it from, and I think they're all correct to some extent. They're all incorrect to some extent because everybody does something differently. 
whether it be the Vulcans, whether it be, you know, people in Japan versus people in America. Um, Actually, I have to take that back. I bet you the Vulcans do project meaning onto things, just not the same way we do. And the the reason I say this is uh, if I show my dog a Frisbee, she doesn't see a Frisbee. She sees us playing in the yard. The experience. Right. She sees the experience of a Frisbee. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a Vulcan probably sees a isn't that how li- living things see food? Like, when I see a really good dish, I don't see, like, oh, my God, that dish is so good. I see me eating that dish. Sure. Yeah, we see it experientially. Yeah. And I would say that when a Vulcan sees a chair, they don't see it as, you know, four legs and a, and a seat. Like, they see it as something that they can sit on. Dude, I've done it with instruments. I see, I see like, YouTube videos of people with really cool 12-string guitars because Ben knows that's my instrument of choice, 12-string guitar. I never go like, oh, I'm, I, I always think of it experientially. That's something I never thought about before. Maybe that's another, once again, not fully defining, but another level to that definition of that living things see things experientially. Well, and, and it, it is the case that we see things as how they impact our current reality or our current yes. motivation yes. and goals. And um, so one of the things, like, for example, if you're late for a meeting, um, let's say that you live in a place where walking to your meeting is appropriate. Mm -hmm. So you're on the street, you're walking, you're late to your meeting. uh, An old lady in front of you is now an obstacle. Absolutely. Where an old lady in front of you before when you weren't late might have been a person. Um, The context changes. You're not only seeing things experientially, you're seeing them contextually, which also might be very similar to each other, of course. You you see see them contextually, uh, but you you also see them uh, based on what it is they are to you in the moment. Absolutely. Um, So like if if, for instance, you're standing on one end of a room and you one corner of a room and you need to get to the other corner of a room and there's a chair directly in the middle of the room. Uh, let's say it's a square room, so the close, the the straightest line to, between you and that other corner goes through the middle of the room. That chair is an obstacle, not a seat. You're making really good points, and I, I don't think I've ever thought about it this way. And I agree with what we're saying. But the more that I think about it, and the more examples we've given, isn't this just an offshoot, a subset? Sorry, an implication of the fact that we have memory, that you know what that chair is, and where you need to go, and why you need to go there. Um, that you know what that old woman is and why her being slow is now an obstacle. So so that's the thing, though, is that your memory of the fact that she is an old woman is actually irrelevant. You're right. She is still an obstacle. Like, she becomes an obstacle without regard to what your memory of her is. Sure, sure. That's okay. The the woman example is – because you might never have seen that woman before. But isn't that the thing that you know – what that old woman is. She doesn't represent her specifically. She represents the idea of slow elderly people, which you have to have some previous experience oh, with. I don't think so because you can see her moving slowly now. Oh, okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. She she represents – like it would be no different than if there was like a slow moving – you know, we've been using Roombas. So let's yeah. say – a Roomba that's significantly bigger takes up more space, yeah. and it's slow moving in front of you. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's moving slowly in front of you, it's a fucking problem. I have to – I agree with you, but I have to ask you from the, from the old lady example to the chair example, is there a difference because one of them we know is sentient and the other is not? The old woman is sentient and can choose to move in certain directions. Maybe not choose to move slowly. That's what I'm saying. But we recognize so, okay, that that so is another how, living thing while the chair how is not. How you choose to interact with it is what is based on memory. 
is what is based on. Yes. Knowledge. Okay. Okay. Good thought. So, like, uh, if you, you know, say in the example with the old woman, you run up on her and you're like, hey, excuse me. And then, you know, she doesn't move and you're like, all right, you fucking rude bitch. And then you like push her out of the way and <laughs> run around her or whatever. Um, whereas punch, if you then, go you know, up to you a punch chair, her, you throw her down, that type of thing, you know, <laughs> if, if you go up to a chair and you say, hey, excuse me, like you're a fucking crazy person, you know, like that's sure. or blind. Um, I mean, you know, or or, or blind um, <laughs> or or very bad with subtitles, you know, something like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I mean, how you how you choose to interact with the obstacle is based on your knowledge of what the obstacle actually consists of. Yeah. Yeah. But. The fact that it's an obstacle is not reliant on memory. You're right. You're right. That this That's is, reliant only on your current goal. This is we've spent so much time talking about this idea of the question started with what is life? You know, like the Adventure Time episode, of course. Um, and as we all know, the definitive answer is that uh, Neptor is life. He's created to throw pies in people's faces. That's that's all it is. But, yep. dude, I feel more confused than I did yesterday about this question now that we've talked about it. And I think that's kind of the point we've been making is that there's no good answer. It's a rabbit hole of thoughts that we need to keep bringing up. And bring up is fun. Don't get me wrong. But with everything we just said about that whole old lady and it's not memory. It's the way you think about them, but how memory is used to interact with them. I mean, it's like a um, – it's like a, if we were talking about this whole time, which came first, the chicken or the egg, and every five seconds we thought of a new reason for the other answer to be the right one, right? right. Oh, God. It's so cool, <laughs> but it's also um, very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't know. I just I, – I think the the part of this that interests me the most is actually the the thoughts about what – how humanity interacts with the world or how humanity experiences the world. Sure. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, the question of what is life, like I think I've accepted because I, I've, I've done the sitting around at a table, drinking beer, talking about this. And I think I've accepted that I'm not going to come to a satisfactory answer. Um, and so what I'm more interested in is how do I live? Yeah. Yeah. That might actually be the best cap on, you know, this philosophical long winded discussion we've have is it had is that, you know, it's not, I mean, I I don't know if, if we um, implied it at the start of this episode or at the start of this conversation. Um, it was never either of Ben and I's intention to nail this down. I mean, we knew we weren't going to nail it down when we started talking about this. I mean, I think I said at the start where I'm like, this movie makes me think about the concept of life. That's why I love it so much, you know. Mm-hmm. I I think you just said it the best way is that, you know— it comes to a point where, yes, it's very fun and very, you know, stimulating to have discussions about, like, well, what is life? How do you separate plants from animals, from living beings, from Roombas? I love that we've somehow landed on Roombas so much in this episode when I don't even fucking own a Roomba, you know, that type of thing. Um, but it comes down to, well, if we can't define the generality of life, what's the next best thing we can do is define how you live? And I think this gets at the idea to 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 you know bring it to a grander scale. Something I think this movie maybe touches on with its notion of having cyborgs or cybernetic you know human hybrids in the movie. Um, I don't think it's the the big point of this, but it's something I know we've talked about before. Ben is that everybody should find a religion, and when I say religion, I don't mean you know you should be Christian or Muslim or Yonism, which Ben is a a member of that type of thing. You should find a set of rules that you believe in and guides your life and find meaning in that. I think that's the big thing 
that is the takeaway of what you were saying. Am I am I going well, a little too grand on that, or what do you think? No, I, I think you're actually uh, kind of hitting the nail on the head. Uh, and I think I want to use this as an opportunity to point out that when philosophers kind of uh, – uh, well, and scientists, whenever they came out at the world and they, they were like, Christians, you're um, – and I say Christians specifically because that's the religion. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But – you know, they, they say it's like this this is not real, it's not based on science, it doesn't exist, whatever. It's like what what they've done, okay, is they they took an understanding of the world that is like let me let me put it this way. Science tells you what is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you how to be. Exactly. So for them to say, like, okay, your God's not real because my science says he's not, it's like does that does that destroy or eliminate the value of something that can tell me how to exist or how to act? It certainly doesn't. And I and I think one of the things that is is like uh, coming home to roost, if you will, is the fact that there was a foundation, and it was removed. Mm-hmm. Humans had a, a behavioral foundation about that that kind of gave them a something to measure themselves against, if you will. And then and then this idea that like, oh, your God's not real came along and made it so people took this this notion like that gave them a foundation and threw it away. But they didn't replace it with anything. They didn't like science isn't a foundation. Science can't tell you how to be. I I think, you know, it's it's been we we were in it. We were born into it uh, well before it took place. I think it's um, almost um, from my my very just, you know internet knowledge of it like kind of post world war 1 after like the the turn of the 1900s that changed a lot of things where you're right that more people became less religious well maybe even after world war 2 that became more of a thing but you're right it wasn't replaced with anything humans got so numerous and so varied in their beliefs that the, it, it, we've almost kind of lost the benefit of you know believing in something and sticking to it and that's even why i did the stupid thing i was in college once you know i was 20 years old and i got gung-ho on the atheism train i wrote papers in college about atheism i was making fun of people who are religious and i realized now that that was very stupid that was very stupid of me very small-minded of me because if somebody has something to believe in and they stick to it and that's what they truly believe in that's the strongest thing i think you can do as a human being and i've said this to you before ben i'm a very religious person while I don't subscribe to any organized religion, I think that I have beliefs that I stick to. I will very scientifically and meaningfully question to make sure they are the correct beliefs as time goes on. But I have beliefs that I believe in because I believe they need to be believed in. <laughs> sure. And that's um, I, I think that's an important part of our society. And, and when philosophers came along and and essentially as Nietzsche put it killed God yes Um, yes. they did they did a disservice to humanity and I think that's what Nietzsche was saying was that that he didn't say God is dead like it was a good thing um he said God is dead what now (laughs) essentially where do we go from here basically Uh, yep and I I think that that's um that's like an incredibly important thing for people to have uh a foundation that that teaches them or, or at least that helps them find their own answers about how they should behave. Yeah. And I know that people will take issue with the fact that religion prescribes a lot of answers. But sometimes, 
sometimes there isn't a clear answer, and the, the answer found or the answer prescribed is as good as the answer found. I think we we proved what you just said through this episode that us not having any good answer and many different answers as to what defines life that is proof that you know there's some questions of the universe that are inherent and intrinsic to living organisms that that we can't define that people want to answer and they can't be and so you need to find the way that you know makes you comfortable of course within limits you know i mean we're not talking like the john wayne gacy's or the ted bundy's who go like the poor purpose of life is to kill other life you know we're not going that far we want everybody to be you know civil and stuff like that but you need to answer these questions for yourself i think is what we're saying uh, yeah i mean well and, and it, like i i think to add on to that if part of answering that question for yourself is that you need to subscribe to a way that a lot of other people have subscribed to and that works for you, that's not a bad thing. Not at all. Uh, but com- I, I, but coming to that conclusion that you need to do it for yourself, like that's the important part. Because yes, yes. the part I don't want is is for people to be raised into a religion and to never question whether that's actually the place they should be. Um, and if if that works for you, then then that's the place to be. If it doesn't, I think that or... is what you just said is super important because in terms of organized religion, in terms not even organized religion, but like any communities, I know there are some people. I'm not one of them, and I think Ben, you are not one of them either. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we we are very comfortable with having our own set of beliefs that we stick to and we will debate uh, with. You know, we're not going to impose them on anybody else, but we're going to debate them. We're going to understand that they're you know. Uh, they had to withstand scrutiny of thought to make them our beliefs. But for some other people, they need the community of an organized religion. They need that welcoming, that sense, and things like that. And I, I don't fault them for that in any way, shape, or form. I think that, you know, community is a very important thing. It's just not the thing for me, if, if that makes sense. To some degree, I agree with you, but I would have to go uh, at least and challenge you a little bit and say that there are probably some of your beliefs— that are centered in some kind of faith. Oh, oh, sure. Some of them. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying like my entire scroll of beliefs does not, you know, relate to one religion or anything like sure. that. But, but so, some of them, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Some of them do. And, and so I think that that's a, an important thing for people who think science can replace religion to understand is yes, like, if you yes. believe that not hurting people is the way to live, uh, that's a faith-based thing. That's not a science-based thing. Exactly, exactly. Because you're going to have that idiot fucking atheist scientist. When I say idiot atheist scientist, I'm thinking of me like 12, 15 years ago, you know, when I was stupid, that type of thing. And I was the one saying like, you know, well, there's no reason that you shouldn't kill your neighbor. Like, what the fuck is that commandment, you know? Or you know what I'm saying, that type of thing. That's sure. a very dumb take. I understand that. You shouldn't kill anybody. I'm... As much as I think life is worthless, life does have meaning, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that, that the disavowal of faith has been greatly yes. a disservice. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not one to say that, like, I think the moral fabric of our country is falling apart or something like that. Uh, but I kind of do. The more, as far as I'm concerned, the moral fabric of the United States died in the '90s or some shit like that. You know, so it probably it's probably because of tsunami. But who am I to say? <laughs> I, I, I guess though, what I really want to point out is that it's really helpful, or it makes life a lot easier if the people you're living around all have a similar cohesive 
belief system. Yes, yes. Not not to say that you should only surround yourself with people that think similarly, because I think debate and challenge is very healthy to anybody's mindset, anybody's belief system. But you're uh, right. I should have said value system, not not beliefs. Okay, value system. But still, I think you can agree with me that you know challenging and thinking about your own beliefs from time to time because they should withstand scrutiny, um, because that's how we grow as people. That's also very important, but you're also at the same time you shouldn't be against everyone else you're around type of, th- or they shouldn't be against yeah. you. It's just the the cohesive fabric of of the the place that you live in. Yes. If your values aren't at least similar, uh, you're going to have trouble, and that's that's something I think that we see with the farthest left and farthest right beliefs in American politics right now is that their value systems are so drastically different that it's it's becoming, or or it appears that it could be becoming the case that there's no way for them to live peacefully near each other. Exactly. Yeah, that is very much a problem. When hostility is bred, that definitely becomes a problem. Absolutely. Right. And I think also the other thing I want to say, which I hope that um, you know, it's been implicit this entire time, uh, not only in this episode, but in every episode Ben and I have done in the past, I want to make it explicit. Not only should you surround yourself with people who feel a similar way to you, and um, you know, also you you have that uh, not hostility but friendship with your with your cohorts. Also, get yourself somebody like Ben and I, where we can debate the shit out of these things. And I think Ben, it's been this this actual conversation. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't think we can apply for Pulitzers on podcasts, but um, just the way we've talked to each other about how many how much we've disagreed in this episode. You and I saying, well, I got to push back on that, that type of thing. We've kept it civil. We've kept it human. We've, well, I don't even know if I should use human because we can't define (laughs) that term. Um, But get yourself, if you're a Rob out there, get yourself a Ben. If you're a Ben out there, get yourself a Rob. Get yourself a friend or friends that you can debate these things with and know at the end of the day, no matter how much you disagree with each other, you're not going to hate each other. Yeah, you might have had some abrasive moments, which I know, Ben, you and I have had before, but we we talked that shit out too. But get yourself a friend that you can debate with and really reflect on yourself. Are my beliefs right? Do I still believe in them? Can I hear these things in a different way? And dude, ghost in the shell? Debt. This is everything I wanted from this conversation, Ben. It's a thematic and intellectual movie. And after we did Primer, I'm like, the fucking gloves are off. Every single time we have a smart movie to talk about, Ben and I are the people to discuss it because, man, we're going to think about things. I mean, it's almost like genetic algorithms that I watch this movie, you watch this movie, me 20 times in my life, you one time, and we're going to come up with thoughts that neither of us ever considered. And isn't that the beauty of discussion? Not of this podcast, which it is of this podcast, but of discussion in general. Yeah, I I was actually going to say that it, it's um, we, people use discussion to organize their thoughts, mm-hmm. and that is, I think, greatly um, advertised isn't exactly the right word, like displayed, demonstrated yeah. here. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people, specifically with my experiences and also my viewing of the internet, which is, I, I know, not statistical at all. I think something that's wildly forgotten by people. I think people want to fight more than anything these days. I think that people see debates as fights, and I think that they should not see yeah. it that way. They should see debates as, um, like I said, an evolutionary algorithm, that you're learning things or you're taking in things that's better than learning that you've never thought of before, and you should see how those puzzle pieces fit into your own thoughts, and if you reject them, you reject them. That's fine. 
if they right. get you to grow as a person and they get you to grow in your mindset, that is what maybe that's the defining characteristic of life. <laughs> I, I mean, if if you want to go as far as to say that that life is defined by growth, uh, you'll find people that agree with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, ben, was there anything else you wanted to say on the philosophical notion? Because I figured we, uh, I was I was about to say I figured we get that out of the way as we are. X amount of hours into this episode because we had to do that quick reset. Oh I don't Lord. know. Um, I would actually still like to talk about the movie. Well, I'm going to say very briefly, but you know, I don't. I don't know what briefly means. The animation. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we haven't even done I, snacks I, yet, bro. Okay, oh maybe no, we, we should. Maybe we should. You know, with us being that sentimental, maybe we should fast track some of these other things. <laughs> uh, I'm just. I just want to say, like uh, Skype tells me, we're more than three and a half hours into this. Rep- oh uh, shit! I just saw. I just moved my OBS out of the way. You're absolutely right. Okay. Well, Ben. Um, here's my big point about the animation. I don't think that we need to spend as much time as we did last week on Under the Red Hood because Under the Red Hood got at a lot of the um, thematic and or, sorry cinematic elements of animation that I think you and I hold very near and dear. The thing that I really wanted to highlight with Ghost in the Shell's animation is the detail. The detail on every single wire that we see, on every single piece of machinery, on every single background, on the city. The musculature in her back when she's, like, ripping it off, uh, ripping the tank. The musculature of the the... people. I mean, I'm thinking of the bubbles when she's diving. I think this is—I wanted to bring this up. We we could not miss this because last week in Under the Red Hood, we talked about how maybe—well, we didn't use this word exactly or this phrase exactly, but I think you know what I mean when I say it. They cut some corners on some things to make the fights better, you know, the, the CGI elements maybe we talked about to make the, um, the, um, the city or the action through the city move very quickly, but it's like in the background you just got people moving very blatantly. I don't think this movie cut any corners. I think anywhere you look, whether it's foreground, background, everything is wildly detailed. I mean, they put so much work into every wire, into every... The whole tank, at the end of... When she fights the tank, which you mentioned to rip apart at the end of the movie, when that tank is firing bullets, I honestly think... I've never done this, but I think you could do a frame-by-frame and you would see every single bullet that tank fires. It's not just muzzle flare. It's actual full animation. And the scene I actually want to mention is when Kusanagi is um, fighting the tank at the end. There's a scene where she reloads her gun and she takes the clip out, the spent clip out of her rifle and throws it on the ground. And it's, of course, the ground is full of water and puddles and stuff like that in this, what, dilapidated subway station they're in. And there's a shot of when that clip hits the ground, it creates steam. And it is so detailed that they didn't have to do that, right? They could have, like, think of a Naruto or a Toonami, you know, animated series or an animated series, anime series shown on Toonami. They would just show the clip hit the ground. Maybe you see some splash. They're like, that's good enough. You know, we get the idea across that they are throwing away that clip to reload another one. Here we see the steam. Not only do we see the steam, we see it in great detail. Like, the detail of the animation in this movie is impeccable. And I think this is one of the reasons that I want to talk about it on this podcast, but also one of the reasons I've grown to love it over all these years is that I don't think there's a single corner they cut in this film because if they need to show us something, they're going to show it to us. I got to say, I mean, I, I don't have much to add to that. Uh, I would say one of the things like where where this movie 
uh, allows us, especially at the time in 96 to see or 95, whenever it was yeah. to see some things that we wouldn't have gotten to see or wouldn't have looked good through practical effects when Kusanagi's on the tank and she's trying to rip off the, the top of the tank and we see the musculature in her back. Like one, one of my favorite and, animated scenes ever, like in history, period, you know, not only right. because of the emotion that we're getting, that she is literally tearing herself apart to get the answer she needs, but just right. the fact that we get multiple edits, very different from Under the Red Hood, where we talked about how there were very long, like, 15-second shots for fight scenes. This is the other side of the coin. We are getting quick edits to incredibly detailed parts of her body that are tearing apart. And yes. it's just as meaningful. It's it's the sore real notion that if you saw this in live action, geez, I don't even want to know what Scarlett Johansson does in that scene in live action. It's got to be the most CGI-ridden bullshit, I would imagine. But the way that they show, oh, this is her arm tearing apart. This is her back, the muscles tensing, like you were saying. These are yeah. the legs really stressing themselves. Like, it's animated, but I feel cringe not cringe in the bad way like physical cringe where i go i feel in my own body what she's going through right now oh yeah the my like the back starts to tighten up looking at that oh oh yes right it's like i need it's, a massage after watching this movie yes <laughs> um yeah so i i, I mean I, I guess i just want to point that out is like that's one of the places where uh this movie exemplifies animation doing something that live action either couldn't or wouldn't have done as well in yeah, in yeah. at least at that time um but overall i mean i have to agree with you i while watching this movie i definitely um uh, kind of juxtaposed it with with under the red hood and it it doesn't look like any cgi is used in terms of like the, the car chases and the actions well you know the action scenes the fight scenes of course under the red hood did those drawn as well sure, sure. but but it, it it looks um beyond that like you said you know the the detail uh of everything like everything literally like everything laying, right like she's we, laying we, on the beach with her and we see like we see water droplets on the on the camera because we're looking through her goggles yeah and it's like they didn't have to do that but but they did that's that's where i think you and i were both saying the same thing we're not pulling any punches like even though ben you said earlier which i do agree with that that the cybernetic like te uh telekinesis talking you know when you don't see their lips moving possibly that was to save money but, dude, every single penny, sorry, yen, they saved for those scenes, they put into these other animation scenes. Absolutely. And that is Absolutely. what I love about it. And here's the thing. I'm so glad, you know, there's nothing CGI noticeable as Under the Red Hood with those, like, chase scenes we mentioned last week. Right. The CGI in this movie exists in one spot or one aspect. Oh. The thermoptic camouflage, uh, which looks yes. so fucking cool to me. I love yeah. the way they pull off thermoptic camouflage. And not only did they pull it off in the way that they did, that it's like a facet throughout the entirety of the movie, they pull it off in the opening scene. When she dives out of the, after killing the uh, diplomatic immunity guy, and yeah. she dives out of the window and turns into thermoptic camouflage, thermoptic, sorry. I mean, I don't even know. Not only because I'm not an animation person, like I, I respect animation, but I've never done animation other than still drawings in my life. And I think Ben, you're the same way. We we're artists more than animators, type of thing. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I I fundamentally don't understand that shot at the start of the movie when she falls out of the window after blowing that dude's head up, and she mm -hmm. turns into thermoptic camouflage, but the whole city doesn't really 
fuck you know what i'm saying like like they blend in that cgi with hand drawn so perfectly yes it's yeah, one yeah. of the things that i watch and i go that's talent right there you know it's well, like yeah. i don't know how they did it but i can respect that they did it and it was a big deal that they did it like uh because like we do get like a distortion of the background of, of course because to, she has to, to like she has to transform into camouflage type of thing yeah right um and and that is all animated very well but but no, I, I'm I'm with you that it's it's just it's it's blended so smoothly. Um, you know, I didn't even uh, like because I was I was really on the lookout for the CGI this time since I sure. uh, kind of you know was less aware of it and under the red hood, and so I, I was on the lookout and, and it it kind of got by me. It's it's blended so well, um, and like I, to the point that I I even saw it as potentially as a choice, like where they made it look a little different than the stuff around it. It's like that right? could have been that could have been a choice because that's what they wanted this camouflage to look like and I would have been perfectly happy with that explanation. I even you know, I, I haven't seen this movie in a few years. I it might have been six years before I rewatched that first recording, but like from my high school Yu Gi Oh days to college, I watched it a bunch. Like I said, I watched the subs, that type of thing. Um once it got to the point where I knew the movie and I knew the dialogue, I was watching more of the animation. I honestly until I did the research for this recording, I did not know that the Thermoptic camouflage was CGI. I thought that they had some weird fucking pointillism artwork going on. Like, I was ready to believe that they put the time in to hand-draw that stuff. And I get now that it's it's CGI, but it's blended so well that it made me think that way for so long. That And isn't that isn't that, like, kind of the best, like, compliment you can give to animated artwork that you think it's real or hand-drawn? Sure. Yeah, I think so. Out of curiosity, where did you find information on that? Oh, so I did a deep dive, as I usually do. Um, uh, I For every episode we ever record, I, I go through the IMDb trivia page. If there's anything on the IMDb trivia page that catches my interest, I do some deeper research into it. That's where I got a lot of the um, box office information about this movie for this recording. Um, okay. But on Wikipedia, very nicely, what I do on Wikipedia, and I've, you know, I, this has become kind of like my go-to thing to do with Wikipedia. I open the Wikipedia page, I scroll down to the references, and I open every single one, and I read those first. Okay. I read because most of the times I've found that whatever's put on Wikipedia, while, like, technically correct, is a bastardization of what is put forward in those citations. Okay. Um, so I always like to read the citations first, and another big thing that I always do is uh, if you look at the edits page, which I think is a lot of people don't know. Which Ben, you and I have talked about it about Adventure Time. I don't think we talked about it on the main feed. You can look at the history of how a Wikipedia page has been edited, and you can look at people commenting on why things should be changed or why things are wrong. And that's usually where I start to get my information, and then I'll read through the Wikipedia page, see if there's anything else, that type of thing. Okay. Neat. Yes. I've I've thankfully learned very much. I have to also say, because I mentioned it before, my, my Chinese uh, finance teacher who had the whole, your laptop died, remember that story, you know, from yes. what, uh, uh, six hours ago at this point? Um, yeah. I also had a teacher, it was for my history class um, in, in my undergrad, uh, that I just got tried to get out of the way because I was like, fuck history. I want to learn math and actuarial science, that type of thing, you know. One of the best moments in my educational history was it was a 50-minute class. We went into the room, big lecture hall. Like I'm talking like one of those 200-student you know, type of lecture halls. Mm-hmm. Dude gets up there, start a class. 
He goes to the computer, gets up on the projector, pulls up Wikipedia, goes to Troy Palamalu's Wikipedia page, and he okay. edits it. He goes to the edit because he has an account. You know, he's logged in already, and he edits Troy Palamalu's Wikipedia page to say, once Troy Palamalu wrestled a bear with his own hands. That's all he typed, and he submitted it. And he showed us right there through the submission that it was now on that Wikipedia page. And he kind of just said, okay, I just want to do that, you know? And we're going to go on to the lesson for today. He goes through the lesson. It was like U.S. history, so we talked a lot about like Civil War stuff, that type of thing. Mm. 45 minutes goes by. At the end of class, he goes, before we're done, I want to pull up this Wikipedia page again. He pulls it up. Troy Palomalu. What he typed at the start of class is gone. He pulls up the edits page. There's three moderators talking about how what this person, him, put was wrong, how it has to be edited, and how he got banned for putting incorrect information on Wikipedia. And he Shit. said, and he said to us, if anybody's ever told you Wikipedia is not reliable, they had a bad experience. From everything I've ever found, Wikipedia is one of the most reliable sources on the internet. And that changed the way I use Wikipedia in my fucking life. Because okay. I never knew the edit page existed. I never knew the discussion page existed. I never knew sure. moderators actually fucking cared about that shit. That's why yeah. everybody, patreon.com slash cinemodities. I know it's been like, there's two or three episodes recently of me doing that shit on the Adventure Time Wiki. Where I go, Ben, here's this really cool post, and I want to read it to you. But also, I need to know who posted it, who argued about it, that type of thing. And... It, it changed my life because my whole high school experience was people going, if you use Wikipedia, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. And I was like, my life, my mind was open because literally 40 minutes, 40 minutes, his information was changed and banned. And he yeah. did it to tell me that, to tell us that, of course. But, you know, I'm obviously the only real person in that classroom because everybody else was Roombas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, no, that's where I found uh, – that's how I do my research for a peek behind the curtains if anybody ever wants to know. Um, you know, when I talk about my notes, like how my notes are just animated titties, that's just me watching the movie, that type of thing. Um, uh, but everything else, I, I try and do the deep dive. I don't want anything to go – you know, wrong in our research. I want to do as few corrections as possible, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate the the inside view because I I was actually curious uh, just to understand some of the CGI uh, usage oh, in animation. Sure, sure. Because I mean, as much as I love animation, I, I was thinking about today, like you know, you mentioned artist versus animator. It's like obviously art style and animation are very different things. Yes, yes. And I don't know that I've ever fully thought about them as different in a way that was appropriate until I, you know, I'm trying to formulate that now. And I want sure, to, sure. to, to, I, I think, you know, Ben, that what you just said is something that we should um, um, keep in the back of our head. And when I edit this, I will definitely make a note of it. Um, when we get to Anomalisa in this series, a stop motion movie we're discussing, I think that's why I love stop motion so much. It is the pure blend of your animating single frames. Not that that's not what any of these other animated movies are not doing, but I think CGI kind of, relinquishes them or frees them from doing every frame individually. Um, but right. stop motion is literally the creation of you need to have a vision because everything you do has to be a single frame and you're blending that together. And yeah. I yeah, that's, that's why I love stop motion so much, which of course we talked about with Coraline, Nightmare for Christmas, uh, the Henry Selleck series, you know, that type of thing. I mean, that's right. why Coraline works as well as it does because Henry Selleck said, you know, I never want to do anything other than ones. Like, if we do something higher than ones, we are diminishing the art form. 
And I think that's what Charlie Kaufman went with in Anomalisa. And um, it's a very different... I, I can't wait to get to Anomalisa because Ben knows I love that movie. I've seen it a million times. I own it on Blu-ray. And uh, I think it's the best representation and use of stop motion. And um, it's a very different movie from uh, Coraline or Nightmare Before Christmas. Any of the fantastical Henry Selleck stuff. Anomalisa is very much an adult film in the sense that, well, one it gets at adult themes, but two, that there is also a sex scene in that movie. <laughs> um, so that'll be another thing. Oh, God, now I realize that we're digging ourselves a hole every time we say, adult animation is the right way to say it, and then we go, animated titties, animated sex, you know, that type of thing. Um, we'll burn well, that bridge know, I mean, when we come to it. <laughs> do, do we do we call every movie that has a sex scene in it porn? The answer is no. Oh, why don't? Why would we do the you same thing? You don't do that? With... I thought... Oh, I thought that's what porn was. <laughs> yeah, in, any movie that has a sex scene. My bad. I uh, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. I like that. I like that. Um, well, I, I think the uh, the last bit that I wanted to mention, uh, because you said it earlier, and we had to get to it. I know, God, Ben, every time you and I say, maybe this will be a short episode, that's just a fucking pipe dream at this point. You said you had some problems with the ending. Ah, oh God. Are you talking about the ending? Because this is where I want to get at. If you have anything before this, you know, let's start there. Kusanagi, after merging with the Puppet Master, being put into the child's body. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, more or less, because I feel like uh, the Puppet Master made this proposition that they should merge. Yes. And then Kusanagi, like the next thing we hear is that they did merge. Um, after, well, after the shooting of their... Yeah, we got the whole thing where Batu kind of blocks the bullet when you don't really know. It's like kind of like a, a almost a, a reveal that is she still alive? Did his arm block the bullet? That type of thing, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that I, like, I, I guess I also had a problem with, with him being, like, th- we went through, you know, this exposition of him being like, this is how you be alive. You actually, like, change because you can't just replicate yourself because then one virus can take out your whole colony. And that's true. Uh, but for him to just be like, now we have to merge. And then for her to wake up and be like, I am not Kusanagi and I am not the puppet master. I am something different. The end. Uh, that's, I just didn't love that. Okay. Okay. That, that's, that's what I kind of do love because one, I love the line. I wrote this quote down. Um, I think it's at the very end. She says, you know, and where does the newborn go from here? The net is vast and infinite. I think that get that is a nice cap on the idea of the puppet master wanting to merge with Kusanagi because the puppet master doesn't really understand what life is in the same way we don't. And they're a you know sentient program, for lack of a better term. We're actual life forms. Um, if anybody didn't realize that, Ben and I are, are human. We don't have cybernetic enhancements. I don't know. Ben might have a pacemaker, which makes him not human. I don't know that. Um, but um, here, here's the thing. Here's the th- this is this is such a Rob thing to point out but this is me loving this movie for so long in that last scene when kusanagi is in the child's body the younger body it is a very child's body but you know what i mean and batu has that conversation with her you know that basically the very last scene of the movie the painting above her like in the wide shots when you see her like sitting in the chair with her head and but the child's body and giving all this you know exposition about what happened or how she feels about what happened the painting mm-hmm. above her is of a sun halfway on the horizon which i have found to be very important 
Because if you have a still image of a sun on a horizon, it means a lot to the viewer. I think seeing a sun halfway through the horizon implies change. But you don't know in which direction that change is going. With a still image, you don't know if the sun is rising or the sun is setting. And okay. I think that is the point at the end of this movie, that the the puppet master proposing um, merging with Kusanagi was a very important part of the movie, and Kusanagi, of course, wanting to get answers about her humanity or her essence of life type of thing. We don't really know if that's good or bad. And I think it's a masterstroke of this movie to give us a sun, a, an image, a still image of a sun halfway over the horizon for us to go... Well, is it rising or setting? Was this good or bad? That's how I've grown to love the end of this movie because I think it is so open-ended. And I think with everything we said about how well, how poorly, I should say, we can define life, that giving us a still image that opens us to either direction is the point of the movie, that we don't know if this is a happy ending or a sad ending. Uh, oh, I, I agree mostly with that um my my problem more comes from like the presentation of it is it's just like it feels very I, I, are you saying I, presentation I it, in general or are you saying batu's reaction or kusanagi's reaction no i'm i'm saying more of like how the movie decided to present us with the information and that is okay. through the exposition oh, so like gotcha, we have gotcha. we have okay. the scene where he's like we would be like the the puppet master's like we wouldn't be ni- like we would be neither you nor me we would be something new and then she wakes up and she's like I'm neither me nor him I'm something new the end like I that's mean, I just you're didn't... right you're right that is that that might be a little too clean I get what you're saying but that's also something we didn't hit on with this whole philosophical aspect like is evolution a defining characteristic of life Roombas can't evolve humans and animals can. They can change. They can adapt. Adapt might be the better word than evolve. A Roomba's, yeah, yeah. A Roomba's never going to fucking learn that it's riding over shit, you know? Yeah, adapting is definitely the, the right term as it happens And that's, that's another interesting question. I mean, I mean Ben, I mean, we, we should physically limit ourselves from talking about no, this because yeah, this would can't. be no. a 16-hour episode. This would be our 24-hour no. live stream if we wanted to actually dive into that. But there do you go. get what I'm saying? Uh, did you notice or did you get what I'm saying about that uh, sun horizon picture? I, I didn't I didn't actually see that picture. I like the idea of it. And I and I agree that it was like unclear whether the ending was good or not. Sure. Um, one thing that I, I kind of dislike from. Oh, my God, I can't remember her name. We've just been saying it a lot. Kusanagi. Kusanagi? Yeah. Kusanagi. Uh, one thing I, I, I didn't love from like her perspective. Well, and she was like unclear about whether she was human. And so she wanted to learn more about this thing that wasn't human. But like by merging with it. She doesn't get any closer to the answer of whether or not she was human. Um, and so, like, I guess that arc is kind of left incomplete as you're, well. You're right about that. You're right about that. But I, I actually kind of appreciate that more now that you and I have had this discussion that, you know, if since you and I can't nail down the definition of life and think it is contextual, oh, why, sh- I, why I should the movie— s- I just mean specifically whether she was a person before she became a cyborg. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. I mean, um, but but no, I, I'm I'm with you that that's a good that that it's good that the movie didn't try to say we know the answer. Yes, uh, yes. because the they would have been wrong. It, it, um, it's like the um when Law and Order gives a verdict, you might disagree with that verdict. I like that this movie basically doesn't give a verdict; it leaves yeah, it open to question. This is one of the open ended Law and Order yeah, episodes. Yes. Um, 
no so i like like i said I, i'm i'm fine with that it's just like i feel like that arc was like set up and then the movie just doesn't do much with it gotcha gotcha um and I, so i like i feel like i feel like i guess maybe that's part of my problem at the end is that sure. it feels it feels abrupt more than it um yeah, that's it. It just feels it's abrupt. It's an abrupt ending. I'm I'm with because... you. I understand, and I, I think this actually goes back to um once again not to rehash or you know redebate it or anything. Um, I think that is a very cultural thing. Sure. From my, from my experience, I mean, you know, I'm also going off of an anime we did not mention before, Neon Genesis Evangelion or Evangelion. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Um, the end of that series is very open-ended. It's also very abstract because they ran out of money. There's a whole production side of it, that type of thing. But I don't think that was seen as negative where, you know, if an American series, maybe to use this as an example, if an American series ran out of money and just got canceled, people would be like, what the fuck? This never got an ending, you know? But in Japan, it gets seen more as an artistic choice that they had to work with what they had type of thing. Well, that's that's probably the difference between knowing you're getting canceled and actually ending a story. Sure. And just being pulled off the air because there are several shows that have been been told, like, you have this last half of a season. To Absolutely. Are, are the shows you're thinking of, which I'm not disagreeing that they exist. I think everybody knows uh, can everybody in the universe in America. Sorry, in America can pick out five shows that ended this way. Are they all American shows that you're thinking of, though? That's oh, another def- that's another thing. I don't know. How does cancellation work in Japan? That's another I, yeah, thing I don't no, know. I, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but so so what, I guess what I'm getting at is it's not a choice when you're just pulled off the air. Absolutely. It's not an artistic choice. You're, you're right there. You're absolutely right there. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, um, which is so, one of the things. I mean, I you know, Ben, we talked about on the Patreon. Patreon.com. This is Cinematis, everybody. We talk about the Constantine live-action movie and the Constantine animated movie. That's a great tie-in to this episode. Um and yeah, they're not remakes because they're also different stories. That's beside the point. I did go and watch the 13 episodes of the um, Constantine CW show. And that is a show that got pulled off the air. And there's no good resolution to that. But um, that's very different from something that gets canceled and goes, you got one more season. Right? right. Where they can Half attempt to reach a resolution where in terms of Constantine, they were ready to do more. And they just said, no, stop it. You know? Right. Well, in, in a lot of those cases where it's like, oh, you just don't get the next season. It's like they even set up for the next season, like you said, ready to do yes, more. Like yes, yes. The, the story, not only is it not resolved, it's actually told in a way that it opens another door. The Constantine TV show, the 13th episode, 13th episode ends with the reveal that like the main angel is a bad guy, and I still kind of lose sleep every day. Because the Constantine CW show is actually really good, and it's really fun. It's like every every episode he has a new fucking mystical item to play with. It's really fucking cool. And the the 13th episode is like, oh, this dude that's been, like, guiding you, Constantine, he's actually really bad. Uh, where do we go from here? Nowhere. <laughs> oh. <laughs> to commercial break, basically, you know? It turns out Constantine just dies. Oh, um, God. The Constantine show is really good. I mean, that would be my thing. When we finish Adventure Time uh, 17 years from now, Ben... <laughs> Uh, I would actually love to do the Constantine TV show because I know you would like it as well. Absolutely. It's a really fun 40 minutes with um, Matt Smith playing. Uh, yeah, Matt Smith playing Constantine. All yeah. of us for you. 
No, we're not doing all of this for you. That was a joke. No, uh, we, we, we can't do that because that would take us the rest of our lives. And also the podcast that is going through SVU every episode in order in a row already exists. And I've been a guest oh, okay. on that podcast. <laughs> oh, neat. <laughs> I did the uh, Ben, if you uh, you were I don't think you were part of Cinematis when it happened, but um, I was a guest on the episode that featured Angela Lansbury. So I could promote my band, the Immortal Lansbury's. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right on yes yes um okay well ben i mean i've spewed a lot of shit at you this episode which i which i'd like to do don't get me wrong was there anything before we get to our questions that you wanted to highlight about ghost in the shell any big thoughts about the philosophical ideas we've thrown out anything like that or are you ready for our questions i'm i'm ready for the questions not that i don't have more to say it's just uh we're we're edging over the four hour mark if we, we're not already over it. We would and, we uh, talk too much. I I understand, Ben. I understand. Okay. Oh, I'm, so, I mean, it's just it's like eleven o'clock where I am, and I have to work tomorrow. Oh, so. shit. I hear you. I hear you as well. I have to travel tomorrow to Boulder as well. Okay. Well, Ben. With all that being said, let's get to our questions. I uh, I think this is one that you know I've made abundantly clear, uh, not only in this discussion but with what I've said to you off mic when we were planning to do this. Cinemodities, hell yes! This is a movie that deals with the concept of life and and humanity like none other. That it causes people to think about these things. That it has to be a cinemodity because I think very rarely do other movies and stories do this. And I also kind of think this is one of the instances where cinemodities and late night blend together. You know, Ben, if I'm showing somebody a late night movie, one of my favorite things is to show them something that will spur fantastic conversation. And if this movie doesn't do that, it doesn't do a damn other thing. So I'm going hell yet. Well, I'm going hell yes to cinemodities. Fuck yes to late night. What do you think? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm nice, quick, simple. Perfect, perfect. I'm I'm so glad you actually got to watch this after, you know, you like you said, you knew about it, you never seen it. I'm glad you got to see it. I hope you're glad as well. That brings oh, yeah. us to snacks. We're at the restaurant. Here's a thing. I mean, this might happen a lot in the whole adult animation series as we go through this because I'm paying attention so much to the story, to the cinematography, to the animation, that type of thing. I don't have a lot of snacks. Just like last week, though, I have some questions. First one, I don't really remember where this came up. What do we do about garbage in the Cinemati's restaurant? I don't know if we ever talked about that. Do we have like we an burn ins- it so it can become stars? Okay, I was about to say, do we have an incinerator? <laughs> Another question I have: Is it okay to eat the flesh of somebody that has sold their body to cybernetics? And let me, you know, put this in perspective. Um, I have said many times, I think to Ben, and also on this podcast, um, if I had the opportunity to eat human flesh without repercussions, like I'm not saying I'm going to murder somebody to do it. I'm not going to say I'm going to go to the black market to buy human flesh. If I had the chance to legally try human, um, I 100% would. Is this the way that we get to try it? By having the flesh of somebody that has previously sold their body to cybernetic enhancement or augmentation. Does that uh, reduce think, their rights for their body after their death, if that makes sense? <laughs> I think the way we're going to get it, get to try, not get to, uh, have to eat human flesh uh, <laughs> is is going to be that we're going to have such a food shortage that, uh, like the organ donation thing on driver license, people are going to be like, I'm food donation. Um, <laughs> but I like that. Like, they check the box. Like, check here if you want to be Soylent Green. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, I... 
uh, does it diminish their right, lower their rights? I mean, I don't know. I think we have like desecration of a corpse laws. So we do, we do. And in America, uh, in America, yeah, yeah. Uh, is the Cinematis restaurant a part of America? That's a question for another time. We're um, sovereign nation. <laughs> I'm a sovereign citizen, goddammit. Um, you know what we didn't talk sure. about? The animation in this movie, which I have to mention, speaking, selling your body to cybernetics. The fucking animation of those people who type with the crazy jointed hands. Oh, yeah. That is some dope shit, dude, isn't it? Yeah. yeah dude, the, that the is such a cool that. visual. Yeah, we get the, uh, the, their fingers break apart into multiple pieces, and then those shoot out extenders, and then they uh, are typing. That... <laughs> I found that kind of goofy because, like, there are times where, with my normal hands, I can uh, I can outpace what my computer can process. Um, <laughs> Dude, they, they how, do what else it's the, doing. the way those finger joints and like parts link together looks kind of like Tinker Toys. Like somebody made a really detailed hand when they were like five years old at the grandma's place or something like that. Right. But just seeing the move is what I love about that animation. Sure. No, you that's know? great. Once again, I maybe. Eating the flesh of somebody was the closest thing I had to a snack. I mean, Ben, if, if you don't want to get into this last question a lot before I throw it to you with what you have, um, with how much we talked about in this episode and how much this movie made me think of it, I you know the definition of life, should we instantiate a strict, stringent definition of life for the Cinemodities restaurant? Um, I mean, I don't know really. I don't really know where this would come up. Maybe there's something we need to ask Maximo about, who's of course our restaurant lawyer, that type of thing. While I don't have a good answer to this and wanted to pick your brain about it, the other part of my note in my snack section of uh, my my research was: um, should we institute a strict, stringent definition for life for the restaurant? Hyphen, which quite possibly might boil down to paying or paid. <laughs> 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 like your uh, I, life starts when you've paid us at the restaurant. <laughs> uh oh, I was thinking maybe a little differently. Like you're you only matter until you've paid because after you've paid, Ooh, you've already paid. That's when they become like sheep or or cattle or something like that. Yeah. You're yeah. right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay. Okay. I don't know any thoughts on that. Um it, it, uh, it, it, that's, that's a that's a big joke. I'm sorry. I'm coming at everybody. I have no snacks for this episode. I was so engrossed. I love this movie. Every single fucking time I watch it, I was even more engrossed since I watched the dub for the first time in my life. So you know, eh, we're okay with that. You know, if I get a little, if I have to type a little less into the spreadsheet while I edit this episode, I'm very okay with that. <laughs> uh, honestly, at, at this point, uh, I'm too tired to make up snacks on the fly. Uh, which is what I always do. You do. Uh, you're, you're you're a fly snacker. That's how it goes. That's right. I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I snack on flies or, or something, something thermoptic camouflage. Okay, that's that, that's, that's actually good is. enough because I was about to say, Ben, if you don't have snacks and you want to do them later, it would have to go into the five year extravaganza correction thing, and I don't want to do that ever, no. you know, because that's work for us later. But I I think literally you just said the best phrase in existence. I will put in the spreadsheet. Not in a correction, not in a yearly extravaganza. I'm going to type in something, something, thermoptic camouflage. That's perfect. We've done worse in the spreadsheet before. With that all being said, before we get to talk about some uh, advertisements and things, I would like to start this whole ending, you know, part of the episode by saying next week we are continuing on with Japanese animation with not the seminal movie, which was Ghost in the Shell, but a movie from one of the, 
I would. I was about to say most. I would say probably the most important Japanese animator to have ever lived. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki. We will be covering one of his movies. And, uh, of course, you might think adult animation. Oh, they can't cover Spirited Away again because they've already covered it. They can't cover Totoro or Ponyo or anything like that. Ben and I are going to be discussing Hayao Miyazaki's most recent film, uh, which I've described to Ben as one of the saddest films I've ever seen, The Wind Rises. Ben and I are going to have to talk a lot about does our passion get used for hate? Does our love mean any less because it's dying? It's going to be another philosophical episode, but it is also from one of the creators that I think, you know, as Ghost in the Shell was the California role, Toonami was basically the, um, the, the thing that pushed the door open to animation, uh, anime in, in America. Hayao Miyazaki has become the Disney of anime in America, and I can't wait to talk about one of his movies. And so, Ben, I can't wait for you to see that movie. I can't wait to watch it again because uh, I cried a whole bunch the first time I watched it. And um, I love feeling emotion in movies. But that's next week, The Wind Rises by Hayao Miyazaki. With all that being said, Ben, even if you are a cyborg, I've heard you have a way to keep track of their lives. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was actually going to say if at the end of this, You've listened to this whole this whole discussion. And you think I need to get my my uh, my I, life back on track? I thought of a better one. I thought of a better one. Even if you have merged with the puppet master, you should still keep track of your life. Something you like go. that. Okay, okay. Ben, please. Uh, where can people find you when they're not getting your philosophical debates about the essence of life? <laughs> you uh, you can find my life counting application. I actually also have a dice rolling application. If you're a if you're a D and D player. Um, you can find that by by searching um, my developer name, Rocket Bear Apps. I did not know uh, about this one. I think uh, it's I th- as far as I know right now, it's only available on Google Play. Uh, but Does it roll the make... same number every time? Uh, sh- um, no, <laughs> it, it, it uses something called Secure Random. Did you to... cut off a word, or did you just shush me? Because I, I blew up your spot. Okay, okay. Good. I just wanted to be sure. Ben is like, no. I have a dice rolling app. It rolls four every time. <laughs> uh, it actually, uh, the dice rolling app actually lets you um, save collections of dice. Um, so you can actually save a collection that's like 2d6 plus 44. Uh, oh, okay. The, that's, okay, I get what you're saying now. That's actually really useful. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it's yeah, it's super useful for uh, for playing D&D. I know that for a lot of people, the fun is in physically rolling dice. But if you uh, if you don't want to do that, or you don't want to have to add things together afterward, you can use my my dice rolling app again. I think that's only available on the Play Store. Um, but who knows if if we get some interest in that, I I might look at putting that on the App Store as well. Do you remember that? I'm pretty sure it's like season four of Whitest Kids You Know. It's none of the Whitest Kids You Know are in the sketch. It's two little children playing a board game, and it's framed as a commercial for the board game. And the board game's concept is you roll a hundred dice at a time. So there's a giant fucking cup with a hundred dice in it. And one kid fucking shakes it up and throws it on the ground. And then, you know, they start going like six plus four plus three plus one plus three plus three. Time lapse to him finishing all the die rolls. And the other kid hits a button like smacks like a staples. This was easy button and goes recount. And the other kid goes... Oh, 
six plus four plus three plus one plus three. It's fucking hilarious, dude. Oh man, that's that's great. Um, <laughs> uh, so oh. I, I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that is the app you're um designing, right, Ben? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it it actually also does uh, collections of collections. Um, so you can you can have a collection like let's say named uh, Great Axe, and that's your 2d6 i think if i remember D D right um and then you have something else that's like your oh i don't know sneak so attack damage i was i was about to make another you, another bad joke but are you saying that it's like if you regularly play this card or this combo of cards that require this set of dice you can save that oh absolutely that's oh shit dude I would have used that in Yu-Gi-Oh! back in the day with how much dice rolling I had to do. Dude, oh, I... that's actually a really fucking cool idea. <laughs> yeah, you can you can save it, you can name it, you can um, add it to your screen and actually roll it and see the outputs. You and can make history. people recount it, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, you <laughs> if you want. You can actually, there's actually a detailed and an undetailed view, so you can see the individual numbers or you can just see the totals. I It was actually a project that I, that I did when I was learning Flutter uh, for the bank I worked for, I, I just was like, "Oh, well, I need to learn this this programming language. So I might just I might as well just make something." Dude, so it's your, out there. It's- your ingenuity on what you just described to me on this app, like, trumped my joke. Like, that's really cool. I mean, that's actually a fucking great idea. Like, I mean, that's amazing. Because I, I would have, like I said, I literally would have lived that back in the day if smartphones were a thing when I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh, you know? Oh, so that's the thing is I, I didn't know that it would appeal to a Yu-Gi-Oh market. So now I might have to go advertise yeah, that Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the metagame of Yu-Gi-Oh is because I, I did play Master Duel for a little bit, which I told you about, but I haven't played in a while because I got all the trophies and that's all I fucking care about with video games. But, like, there are a lot of things in Yu-Gi-Oh! that, like, require, like, this card requires this set number of dice to be rolled type of thing. Yeah. Um, the yeah. Blackwing Monsters, I'm pretty sure, which are a very popular uh, deck from what I know. Um, so, yeah, hell yeah. Link in the show notes, dude. I don't know if I have the link to that one, so no, I don't send it to me I'll, on I'll Skype or you. Facebook, like, so I can put it in the show notes because that's a great idea. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the enthusiasm. There's that. There's the uh, the Life Counter app, which is the one I always pitch, the one I've worked on most recently. Oh, yeah, you got to get strategy life. Yeah, okay, okay. You're a cybernetic organism. You got to know how many hearts you have left. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, uh, I actually very recently um, fixed a defect in, in that uh, in that app, so, you know, that's good. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to say that that app is out there and growing. I looked at the app store downloads. I'm at like 270 now or some shit. So nice. yeah, it's it's uh, decidedly more than just my friends, which is all that really matters, I guess. I will put the once again as always the links um, to download that in the show notes. I'll put the affiliate link, which I know you want to talk about a little bit more. But I have to say, um, I'm actually really glad, Ben, that you um fix that defect because i'm pretty sure the defect was if you named your player ben it would win every time um <laughs> that was uh, a problem <laughs> that, yeah there's there's a running joke in my joke in my friend group actually that uh it always picks me to go first um not so, only does it always pick you to go first i remember i'm pretty sure from last september when you and i played you know you were ben i hit you with like 10 commander damage and the app was like no 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 that's one that's one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Ben's app is really good. I, I have to say, because I don't think it's, I think it's been a, a few months since I've said it, that I've actually used it, you know, before his updates and that thing. I don't play Magic a lot, but I respect the card game lifestyle uh, very greatly. And um, I don't know, 
Ben, when you and I played in your apartment, like me, you and Gabe played that night, you know, that type of thing, I would have been like, what the fuck do I have to write down a number for, you know? Um, just us, like, being able to put one phone in the center and tap it. That was so easy. That That's literally... I, I can't stress it enough. I would have died for this when I was fucking playing Yu-Gi-Oh! five days out of the week when, when I was younger, you know? <laughs> uh, I actually just found the page for my dice rolling app, and I, I gotta say... Uh, I love this. I, I hadn't seen this review. Um, somebody left a review on here. This is the first and only dice roller that lets you roll multiple attacks at once. This is a must-have for anyone playing a summoner who doesn't want to slow the game down. Nice. I cannot praise this enough. Nice. Yeah, um, it has like 140 users or something. Um, here we go. Yeah, just, send it's me just that link. Sh- send me that link. I'll put it in the show notes because I don't have that one. I have all your other life counter app stuff you know but um i'll throw that in there as well absolutely yeah and i I forgot i also like implemented like color scheme so you can pick the color scheme you want for this app um yeah it's it's just it was you know a little side project i did i i kind of forgot about it and it actually kept growing while i wasn't paying attention to it right on right on on. um well yes i just got the the link okay i'll put in the show notes um I whatever channel that came in, maybe I won't even edit that sound out. I hear the little bloop through Skype, you know that type of thing. I'll <laughs> leave that in because Ben just sent it to me. With with side projects being mentioned, this is something that I forgot to mention in the last few weeks that I I actually should be mentioning, but I haven't. But I will. If you like what you've heard from the intros of Cinemodities and also the intro of Knights of Vader, that song, those songs are done by me and my friends. If you want to hear more music from Rob and his friends, the Immortal Lansberries have a new single out now as we are preparing for our new album. It is called Song Away From Home, and if you search that on Apple, on YouTube, on iTunes, on Spotify, uh, Apple and iTunes are the same thing. I'm thinking Apple Podcasts, which is defunct now or something like that. Uh, We would love to hear you or, or to give that listen to you. Um, I can actually say at this point, Ben, you have heard this song, right? This um, is the um, every time I think about it, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. about it. That's our Absolutely. single from the new album. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's fire. Check uh, it out. Thank you, Ben. I was about to say, Ben, can I can I pull your teeth? Because I've said so much good shit about your app. Can you say some positive things? But I didn't even need to pull your teeth. You just said some positive shit. I really have yeah, to a, promote this because um, Matt it's a and I... It's earworm. I, I will... I'm going to warn you, if you listen to it, it will be stuck in your head for days. And that's a good thing, but it will be there. Matt and I have, of course, if anybody follows The Immortal Lensberries or any music I do, um, this is the first album we've released in about two and a half years. Matt and I have been working on this for a long, long time. I mean, the full album is going to be a doozy. We have, like, this whole structure to it. Um, it's basically like, you know, going to an open mic night and listening to a lot of different songs. Like, it's very much, you know, spatially oriented. We try to do a lot of stuff with the editing to make you feel like you're in a room while listening to this music. It's it's very, very interesting. Um, but we had to use this song as a single because it's the one that, you know, both of us, we came up with and... Um, we just said, like, this is something. This is something special. Like, the earworm aspect that Ben mentioned, um, it's it's so special. We don't have anything else like this, and uh, we wanted to get it out there. And, uh, Ben, on that note, you know, I hope everybody goes and listens to this song. I'll put it in the show notes. There's going to be so many fucking links in these show notes. Um, I do want to mention to you, Ben, that um, the, the first act of that song, of Song Away From Home, you know, which is every time I think about it and then another line, so that's like the whole structure of the first 30, 
45, one minute, whatever, you know, we want to call it. Um, the first act, as we like to think about it, because we care about our music way too much. The whole thing is like, every time I think about it, and then another line. The last yeah. two times that we do that, I said to Matt, when I recorded it, um, because I do the lyrics, not to toot my own horn. If you don't like my voice, don't listen to this shit, anybody. Um, but <laughs> the last two lyrics, the last two lines in that first act are, every time I think about it, I think about it. Every time I think about it, I think about it. And when I recorded that and I sent it to Matt, I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever put to recording. I was like, I did this because it just kind of fit the cadence. It fit the meter. You know, every time I think about it, I think about it. You know, and yeah. I was like, this is so stupid. Like, I, I'm upset with myself that I said something this stupid on recording because I, I, I care a lot about my lyrics, you know. And Matt was like, dude, I don't care how stupid you think it is. It sounds fucking amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, it's really good. Um, dude, okay. Think- thank you. Because everybody that has heard this single now, everybody that we've shared this with, they go, dude, that's the best part of the song. Every time I think about it, I think about it. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, dude, um, I'm, I'm sitting here, like, pondering, like, head in my hands, pondering, what have I done with my life? Should should I should I be writing dumber lyrics? <laughs> like it's a very strange feeling for me, Ben, that I think the stupidest thing I've ever written is also the best sounding thing I've ever written. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, sometimes people are dumb, and uh, some, they don't. They some, can only appreciate the dumb things. And sometimes I need to be dumber. Ain't that the truth? Sometimes and, uh, we all need to be dumber because every time I think about it, I think about it. I will put that link into the show notes. There's going to be so many links. Everybody in the, in the cinema audience, check them out because you should support Ben. You should support me. You support my friends. You support the podcast at cinemodities.patreon.com. Of course, we'd mentioned that earlier, but if you want even more episodes, you want to hear us talk about everything else that doesn't fit on the main feed whether it be rants whether it be adventure time whether it be the things that you know don't fit anywhere else like the batman like um very recently sorry to bother you a fan request ben and i have to debate the facets of becoming a horse hybrid person it's all good fun um i i do want to say um you you are a horse you're a horse hybrid person is that what you're Put saying? the advertisement earlier in the episode. I know. We, we actually did. We actually did. We went like 30 minutes before we did the Patreon. So, yeah, I will have to edit that one in there. We, we, we missed it this time because we were so excited about some other things. But, yes, of course. With all that being said, Ben, next week, The Wind Rises. Hayao Miyazaki, The Wind Rises. I think the only thing left to say... Um, I have a very strong opinion on this. How do we end this episode? The end credits song for Ghost in the Shell 1995 is a song called One Minute Warning by Passengers. And I never knew this until I did my research for this. It's a song I've actually loved for a long, long time. I've had it on my phone. Like, I keep, like, physical files on, well, you know, digital files. You know what I mean. On my phone. I've always had this on there because I've loved it for years, but I never knew until this research. Passengers, the band that performs One Minute Warning, is a collaboration between you 2 and Brian Eno. Like, oh. notably American and British artists. This song is a banger. Let's play it in reverse. How does that sound? There you go. Sounds great. Perfect. Until next time, everybody, I can't wait. 
for Ben and I to talk Hayao Miyazaki, even though we've already covered Spirited Away next week. The preamble of that episode is going to be Ben and I talking about our love for Hayao Miyazaki, who he keeps getting his name wrong and keeps calling him Mayo Hiyazaki. You know, that was last week, that type of thing, Ben. Mayo shoes a what? Uh, Inshallah. Is that what you just said, Ben? I'm sorry. I had to. Okay. Until next time, everybody. Ben, what? This this animation series is too much fun. We might have to dial back on how much fun this is. I, I was going to say, at this point, we have got to be breaking records, right? We're like, uh, we're like, we're, we we want to talk to each other too much. What's wrong with us? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far. Yeah.